Well, hey, welcome to Recreated Podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, today we got a guy that I know is not from Medina County, Ohio. At least I hope he's not. <laughs> um, his name's Danny Cox, and he's an author, and he's an evangelist, and he has an incredible story that I've only heard parts of. So I tell you what, we're going to not do an intro section today and we're going to dive right into a story because it could be a long one and we want to hear it all. So um, I'm Jamie. I'm Alyssa. Uh, I'm Keith. <laughs> and then you are who? Danny Cox. <laughs> Danny Cox is in the house. <laughs> all right, cool. Look at the long line to make believe kings and the Lord of the Flies wants you to kiss his ring. Follow new rules with invisible strings and become a puppet in a diabolical scheme. How do good men become a part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. Well, how we how we start our, every program? I don't know if you've listened to any of them. Is where were you born? I was born in uh, Granite City, Illinois. All right. Yeah. All right. Good. Congrats. Not yes. Medina County, Ohio. Not yeah. Ohio. No. Hey, now can that's I... just, you know, there's St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, the Mississippi River separates Illinois and Missouri. And uh, I was just on the Illinois side. I could actually, oh, wow. on, on a good day when the sky was clear, I could look over and see downtown St. Louis. So I'm that? just on the Illinois side. Uh, across the bridge. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very cool. And, and for our guests, we we are zooming Danny in. Obviously, he's he's yes. currently in Arkansas, and this is our first Zoom remote episode. So you are, so this is going to be uh, interesting, and um, I, this was really exciting for me. I, I I was so excited that you reached out, Danny. So uh, thank thanks, you. Thanks a lot for that. So we're gonna let you take it, and then we'll just chime in whenever and interrupt you a lot. <laughs> okay, I expect that. <laughs> okay, cool. Go I've ahead. listened to other I've listened to other podcasts, so I, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, so once again everybody, my name's Danny Cox. I'm a prison chaplain and an evangelist. I'm also an ex con, an ex drug dealer, an ex drug addict, an ex alcoholic. I served ten years in federal prison. During that time I served time in twelve federal prisons, five county jails, and eight states. I have an incredible testimony, but let's get one thing straight right now. My testimony is not incredible because of me. It's incredible because of God and the things he did in my life. Mm. And so I want you guys to turn up your volume. (laughs) I want you to relax and let's roll. Let's roll. Sit back, right? Yes. So when I was about five years old, I realized for the first time in my life there was something incredibly wrong in my home. I remember waking up about uh, in the middle of the night, at least at five years old, and when it's dark, it's in the middle of the night as far as you're concerned. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard some terrible noises, like something got turned over or something was being broken in another room. And just being five years old, I, I cried out and I said, Mommy! And I heard this deep voice say, if you don't shut up, I'm going to come in there. Well, let me tell you something. Even at five years old, I knew what that meant. Number one, it was my dad. And number two, if I said anything else, he would come in there, take off his belt. And when he took it off, it looked like it was 10 feet long, fold it over, lift me up off the floor with my hand and wear me out. Mm -hmm. I knew that. So I spun over in the bed. 
I put my face in the pillow and I cried myself to sleep. Next morning, I got up and I went into the kitchen. Being five years old, I'd forgotten what happened during the night. And I remember in our little cracker box house, we were so poor. I'll, I'll touch on that in a little bit. And um, I could see my mother's back and she had on a white terry cloth robe. You know, it's just like a big white towel made into a robe. Mm. And uh, she was standing at the stove cooking and she would cook breakfast for us kids, that older brother and two younger sisters. And I walked up beside my mom and I started to say something. And when I looked up, I gasped because when I looked up, my mother's eye was black on one side and swollen. Her nose had a big knot in it and she had some blood in her nostril still. And her lip was split wide open and she immediately brought her finger up to let me know to be quiet. She couldn't even touch her lip. But I knew instantly she meant, please, son, don't cry out and wake up your dad. Mm. Not five years old, my, my head came up just a little above my mother's waist and I didn't know what to do. And I, and I wrapped my arms around her hips and I put my, my little face against her robe and I cried my heart out for my mommy. It was a devastating thing to see my mother like that. And you remember yeah. that like it just happened, huh? Yes, I do. And, I have, oh. you know, I've been telling this story for years, and I, can't, I still get tears in my eyes. I've got a tissue right here. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's a little difficult. Yeah. Uh, but I, I loved her so much, and I, I, I began to get fearful for my mother. I, I love my dad, but I was fearful for my mother now. And, um, see, my dad was an over-the-road truck driver. He would go pick up cars in Detroit and then bring them to the St. Louis area. He'd be out of town uh, sometimes two weeks in a row. When he got home, he wanted to unwind, and so he brought beer home every time. And uh, he would start drinking, and at first he was funny and, and, uh, and lighthearted, but with every beer, it seemed to get darker and darker, and it, 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 his mood just changed. I remember sometimes my mom would say, okay, kids, come on, it's time to go to bed. And we'd say, mom, it's still daylight outside. Mm. And, uh, but my mom knew, she, she knew. Uh. She'd say, I said, go to bed, so we'd go to bed, and uh, because it took me years to get it, but my mom loved us so much that she knew a beating was coming mm -hmm. and she was going to take it for all of us. Uh -huh. And um, all the time that um, when I was growing up, I don't remember ever my dad saying a prayer, even over a meal. I don't remember ever seeing a Bible. I don't remember him ever taking us to church because my dad reached for the bottle instead of the Bible. So these things went on for a few years, and I told you I'd touch on the poor thing, just so you know how poor, because this is important to later on, how I felt about life. I remember that it seemed like every school year in grade school, I went to it, there was three of them in our little city, and I went to a different one every year, all of us kids. It was so tough to go to a new school. I kept thinking, why? Why are we moving? Why, why are we going to another school? Most kids go all the way through, through the same school, right? Mm -hmm. Took me years to figure out that we probably got thrown out of the place for my dad not paying the rent. Now he worked, I don't know where the money went. And that, that wasn't up to me to be able to ask that. But um, it was really difficult. And I remember, just to tell you how poor we were, I remember one time we were in a two-story apartment and we didn't even have a refrigerator. Now we didn't have much food ever anyway, but but my mom was resourceful and she went to the to the market and she got a little wooden crate. She came home and she had my dad opened the little window in the in the apartment and it faced an alley. Back in those days, there was alleys everywhere, you know. Mm. It's not like it is today. So your trash people came down the alley to get your stuff. Now they come out in front, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, And so he nailed right to the side of the building. It was just 
like I said, a flea bag apartment, nailed this crate. So she would put milk out there and, and cheese and butter and, and perishables and cover it so the birds couldn't get into it. You know what I mean? Oh. That was a pretty good thing. Yeah. And I remember also that we were so poor we couldn't afford toothpaste. And and my mom would take a piece of white bread. Now, at that time, we're talking 1954, 55. Mm. My mom would take a piece of white bread, cost a nickel a loaf, maybe a dime, and she would turn on the burner on the stove and she would burn one side of the bread completely black. And then she would flip it over and burn the other side. She would take it over to the table and scrape all the black char off, off of the bread. She would sit a cup there with water in it. Each kid would come up and dip our tooth our toothbrush into the water and swipe into the, to the, to the black charred stuff. And we would go to the bathroom uh, and then brush oh our teeth. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. no, That's wow. pretty smart. That was our toothpaste. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you something, it worked really well. It does. Now, now you got you got to make sure and rinse out real good because you look pretty goofy with all that stuff between your teeth. But that's the way my mom was. She she tried to make the best of everything, even in the worst circumstances. And I just loved her for it. And wow. she had a good attitude most of the time. Did you have siblings? That's the kind of thing I, did. I went to school with no lunch money or anything many times. Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I had a brother who was two year two years older than me. Okay. Uh, and then I had a sister one year younger and a sister two years younger. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, so there was a flock of us. So in yeah. just when I say something, when I say something small, I'm talking 800 square feet for six people. That's pretty small. Oh wow, yeah. Oh my gosh, it was. Uh, we slept in the living room floors. We slept everywhere. It was it was crazy. Yeah. So. This went on for years, this punishment, dad beating us, you know, with the belt. And I mean, wow. And, and punching my mother. And I remember that as I got to understand, when I got up and got out of bed in the morning, and if my mom had sunglasses on cooking breakfast, hmm. she had black eyes under there. I didn't uh, say anything because she was a wonderful person, but it, it hurt, you know. How did your, how so, did your uh, brothers, brother and sisters handle all of that? Were you all kind of on the same team together? Yeah, we were scared to death of my dad, so we didn't say much, you know, yeah. uh, we, we were scared of him. Now, when he wasn't there, we all had a great time, and, and, we, and like I said, you know, my dad could be a wonderful guy, but as soon as he touched a bottle of beer, it was over. Wow. I mean, it was over. He was one of those mean drunks, and you know the sad thing about it, Keith, is that later on in life, I talked to all my relatives my dad didn't go to bars and start fights with men and, and punch them out and go outside and mm. let's get this over with stuff. The only people he hurt was the people who loved him, yeah. his wife and his children. Yeah. What a sad thing. Yeah. And so I, this went on for some years. And um, one day we, we got out of school. It was, it was a school summer vacation. We get out of school and, um, all of us come home from school together. And when we walked in this, this little apartment, we were in another one now. So we'd already changed. I changed school, first grade, second grade, third grade. I'd already changed schools every time. So did my brother and sisters. And uh, my mom was sitting at the table smoking a camel cigarette. That was one of her big downfalls. She loved camel cigarettes. And um, there were suitcases sitting on the floor. And my brother being, I was 10, my brother being 12, she threw him the keys and she said, son, go outside and open the trunk. You kids grab those suitcases and get them out to the car. We're leaving. Wow. Let me tell you something. There was no grass under my feet, man. I mean, I grabbed him and flew <laughs> wow. because she said, you know, he could be home at any time. We didn't even have a phone and he would just come in anytime. So we hurried, got in the car. I think we had a 53 Pontiac at the time. And we, we, she started up, we took off. It was kind of a sigh of relief that he hadn't caught us and made us stay. And, um, 
we headed for California where her, her brother and, uh, and my, my uncle and aunt lived. And, uh, you know, back in those days, there, there wasn't any such thing as freeways and, and interstates and stuff. It was a two-lane highway all the way to California. <laughs> yeah, you wow. did. Sometimes you, you get behind this big truck, you know, with yeah. some stuff. You might be driving 20 miles an hour. Yeah. It took us four days to get there. And on top of it, no air conditioning. We had the windows down. Our arms were burnt, you know, from sticking our arms on the edge because it was summer. It was miserable. I think my poor mom, I'm sure all four of us kids, asked if we were almost there a thousand oh, times. Oh, yeah. Because we had no concept of 2,000 miles, 2,500 miles to California. But, man, and, uh, she had to be – what was her – mental state like just super excited to get out of there was she stressing it it was when we got out of the city limits of town and got on the road and back then it wasn't highway 44 it was highway 66 out of st louis and went straight to california but it was like i said two lane curves and oh my gosh it was crazy and um so we finally get to California, and you know, when you're when you're little and you're poor, you, you don't know it. You think everybody's poor because mm-hmm. you don't get yeah. to see anything else. You don't you don't get to see what anybody else has at that time because you're little. And uh, my uncle had a house. Mm. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> and then we went into the house. We were amazed again because he had a dining room. I'd never seen one before. I said, wow. "Wait a minute." You fix food in the kitchen, and then you bring it in here to eat it, right? And I go, "Yeah." I go, "Wow, what a concept!" You know. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And uh, my uncle had money. So we ate like kings. I mean, we just, well, wow. we were eating all the time. And they were so gracious to us. And um, we stayed there a year. Of course, I had to go to another school. Now I go to fifth grade in California. So, I, you know, I went second, third, fourth in, in other schools. Now I'm in California going fifth grade. All of us moving and moving and moving. And um, which school uh, got out after a year. School. The question? Which city are you in in California? I... I I'm going to guess now because I don't know California real well, but I remember that I think we were in Ventura okay. or maybe Reseda Canyon. I, I don't know if those are right next to each other or not, but I remember those those two city names and we lived right in there somewhere. So I, okay. I don't know. So L.A. somewhere. Yeah. 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 Big, big city. Yeah. Uh, we certainly weren't in Hollywood. I mean, I, I knew there was bigger houses than, than he had. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, so school got out after we went, after I went to fifth grade. And then, um, so I, uh, we, we come in, we're out playing or something. We come in and my mom and my uncle, and my aunt are sitting in chairs at the dining room table. And I could tell right away something was wrong. And, um, my mom said, kids, come here. We went over there and, and she didn't, she did not make any bones about it. She said, your dad's dead. Oh, oh. And I'm going to tell you something right now. Wow. I was crushed that my dad was dead. But the worst thing, even worse than him dying, was that at this point in my life, I never heard my dad tell me he loved me, not even once. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to hear it my whole life. I was hoping my dad would straighten up and our family would go back together and he quit drinking. But now he was gone. And I would never hear him tell me my whole life he loved me. Mm. So my mom uh, said, kids, she said, tomorrow morning we're packing and we're going back to Granite City, Illinois. So we headed back on that journey that seemed like it took a year at least. You know, at our age, gosh, it was a year to get back from California to Illinois. (laughs) We finally get back. We had no place to go. 
my my grandmother lived in uh, a place called Kirkpatrick Homes. Now, if anybody listens to this and they're from around my hometown area, they'll all know what I'm talking about. It was a uh, government housing project. The people in town called it the project or the homes. You know, if you lived in East St. Louis, five five minutes away, which is a notorious place, they would probably call it the hood there. Mm. You know, so now you get an idea of what we're talking here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my grandmother and my aunt, my mother's sister, lived there. So here we come, the team of five. So now we got seven people living in a little bitty two-bedroom apartment. Wow. And um, all there's just building after building in this big square. And it's they're, they're like two-story brick, and there's four doors. And you had a downstairs and an upstairs with two bedrooms. And so seven of us now were living in this place. Now, this place might have been a little bigger. It might have been 900 square feet. Mm-hmm. But seven of us were living there, and we were glad to have a place to live. And uh, but the strange thing about the hood was, or, or the homes, there was no men. Hmm. Now, my dad was over the line with authority, but there was zero authority there. It had women that were divorced with their kids, women that had kids that had never been married, and then some widowers like my mother, and all kids, not a man around. Wow. Well, they would come late at night. They would come late at night and, and get drunk and want to party with the women and leave again. But it basically no men lived there and there was no dads. So you know what that means? That means chaos in the neighborhood. Yeah. The kids would, would drink and, and, uh, and smoke cigarettes, you know, uh, seven, eight years old, start smoking cigarettes and drinking and stealing booze if they had any at home, getting crazy, stealing from the area. Uh, people in town were, were afraid of the place, actually. They were afraid to even drive through it. They didn't want any part of it. You know, I, I didn't realize at first what it was really like that I was living in. I was glad to be back home and glad to have the neighborhood. But I was a sports fanatic, and, and uh, I knew, uh, and I'd always played first string every year of basketball in every, every school I'd been in w- since fourth grade because until fourth grade, you don't they don't have a team. And so um, I knew if I smoked cigarettes and got caught, I'd get kicked off the team. So I, I said, I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to smoke because I like basketball. Mm-hmm. And I had a basketball Jones going and uh, so, so um, I, I remember that, um, they, you know, these guys were they're fighting and stabbing people and shooting. The kids were really tough at 15, 16 years old. I mean, you didn't even want to mess with them. They were they were out of control. So 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 life moves on a little bit. And, and just to show you how dysfunctional my family was and people listening right now, uh, I, I know that other people are going to be able to relate to many parts of my testimony. That's why I want to tell the long version of it, because life's tough. Sometimes you run into things that are very difficult. And um, so when my brother got 16, I'm 14, he gets a girl pregnant. And so my mother and her mother, she's 16, tell them they can get married. Wow. And they got 16 <laughs> years old, get married. My brother drops out of school and gets a job in like a steel mill or something. It, it, it crushed his whole life and hers too, actually. You know, it, it, it's sad because I am totally against abortion. I am pro-life 100%. But sometimes there's situations where the best, the best results would have been to give, to give the child to a home that could afford it, that really wanted a child that couldn't have one. Maybe later on in life they could be reunited, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. rushed them. I, I mean, my brother worked like a Hebrew slave and could never quite catch up, and it, it was tough, uh-huh. you know. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I remember I finally got my driver's license. I'm 16 years old. I got my driver's license, and um, uh, I saw this cute girl at school, you see, and I said, hey, um, I knew where she lived. She lived about a mile and a half from me. She lived in a house, you know. 
Uh, and um, I knew there was, there was a little ice cream stand not too far from there. I mean, they didn't have Dairy Queens and stuff back then. But I said, <laughs> how would you like to get an ice cream this weekend? She goes, yeah, that'd be great. And I go, wow, I got a date, man. Well done. <laughs> My mom lets me have the car. We got a 49 Chevy, stick shift on a column, three speed, with a two-door. <laughs> and so I go over to her house, and I knock on the door, and a guy answers. Well, I knew it was her dad, right? And he goes, well, so-and-so's not ready yet. Why don't you come on in? Well, at first I thought maybe she was fashionably late, you know, but I don't think she, I don't think at 16 she got that yet. But I realized that dad wanted to talk to her oh, date. Oh, yeah. So I sit down and, because uh, I went around dads. There was no dads around me anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he starts asking me questions. And I told him I was on the basketball team and all that stuff. And he goes, boy, he was really on board with me for a while. And um, <laughs> asked me a little question. We're doing really good. And he says, well, where do you live, son? And I said, well, I, I, live at, I live at the homes down the street, the projects. He says, you mean Kirkpatrick Homes? And I said, yes, sir. And I'm telling you what, his face turned white as a sheet. Mm. And he didn't have to say anything after that point, guys. He, um, I knew that he thought to himself, this kid is white trash. Mm. I mean, that one expression was like a thousand words. I mean, I kind of knew it, but I never had to face it like this. Mm-hmm. It hurt me so bad. First, I felt like my dad rejected me and didn't love me. I wasn't good enough. Now this guy laid it on me again that I wasn't good enough. He didn't have to say it, but I knew it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took her to get ice cream and brought her back, and I never saw her again. But, and I don't know what the reason is now because it's been a lot of years. But I, I made this vow in my heart. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to make lots of money. I'm going to be looked up to and never looked down on again like this man. Wow. Wow. I'm going to make it to the top and nothing's going to stop me. I'm not, I'm going to have a house like other people. Back then I thought it'd be cool to have a picket fence because that, you know, you'll hear the old, I wanted a corner house with a picket fence. That, that was something American I thought. Dream. Yep. Oh yeah. If you had a house in the middle of the block, that was cool. But you had a corner house. Oh, hey, you got a white was... fence, man. Now you're... Oh yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I started thinking like that. And um, so then at 16 years old, my mother marries another alcoholic. Mm. And now this guy wasn't violent, but he was a total lush, drinking all the time, you know. And um, did your mom drink? Oh yeah. Okay, so yes, she was man. a partier too. Well, I mean, the first thing she did, you know, and my mom was a wonderful person. So I'm not saying this. You ask a question, I'm going to tell you the truth. She. Um, when I got to where my grandmother could watch us all and stuff, the first thing she did to get a job was to go get a, a waitress job in a bar. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, well, you know, my mom was still pretty young at the time. You know, I, I don't know how old she was. It, it, let me see. She probably got married at 17 or 18 and we're 10, 20. She, I don't know. She was 30 years old, maybe 30 years old at the time. She was still a young woman, you know. Yeah. yeah. She had this whole flock of kids to, to deal with, you know, and she would, you know, need a little time off. But anyway, she, um, so she marries this guy. And then by the time that I get to be a senior in high school, talk about dysfunctional, my, I had a sister as a junior and a sister that was a sophomore. Both the junior and sophomore sister dropped out of high school and they married alcoholics. Oh. Wow. I kid you not. Ruined their lives. It was horrifying. So I got my brother over there now at 20 years old, has another kid struggling like crazy at 20 years old. I got my sisters dropping out of high school in 10th grade and 11th grade to marry alcoholics. And I'm in school. It just it just broke my heart. It just seemed like it went on and on. And um, 
So I remember that when I graduated at 18 years old, I just turned 18, and uh, me and two other guys, our parents wanted to have a big party for us, you know. And uh, so they so they said, okay, we're going to all split it and have this little hall place, and we're going to come there. And you guys come there after you graduate. Well, they came, they came, and then they left. And then we came in with our caps and gowns, you know, and they had the lights off. And then they throw the lights on. They throw the confetti. There's balloons all over. And my stepdad's standing there, and he hands me a cold beer, and he says, drink up. You're a man now. Hmm. I hadn't drank yet because I, 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 sports was so important to me. But I took the beer, and I drank it, and I liked it. And I drank I don't know enough that I was sick the next day. Oh wow! Uh, you know, I I just oh, I, I got drunk. I got dr- just drunk as a dog. Wow! Sick the next day. Um, it was summertime. I wanted to go to college three months later, so I um, I got a job in a steel mill, and um, started working with these guys. And every day these guys was they go to a bar in town. They said, "Come on, Danny, let's go, man." I said, "I can't go into a bar. I'm only 18." They said, "Who cares?" They said, "You're with us." We spend money there all the time. You go with us, don't say anything. So I go in there with them. We all belly up to the bar. And those guys go, give us six whatevers, you know, Budweiser's. And boom, 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 boom. There they were. Never said a word to me. So now I'm drinking every day after work. I'm working in a steel mill. I'm turning into my old man at 18, Mm. you know. And I, I didn't even realize it at first, you know, that, that I was starting to turn into an alcoholic. I'm drinking every day. I'm working. I'm saving my money, you know. And then at the end of the summer, I, I took out, uh, I took, I quit that job, took out a school loan, had money I saved and started at Southern Illinois University at the Edwardsville campus in Edwardsville, Illinois. And um, just getting ready to start there. My, my stepdad calls me to the side and says, well, he says, I think you're old enough to be on your own now. He says, uh, I'll give you a week. Wow. So pretty much that's it. But you know what? We're, we're talking 1966. That's the way it was back then. Yeah. You didn't get to hang around in mommy and daddy's basement till you're 25. <laughs> you either worked or you didn't eat. And as yeah. far as he was concerned, I was man enough to pay for my own food. Hmm. I didn't know what to do at first, so I called up three or four of my friends. And guess what? They all got thrown out too. So, <laughs> so, so, we, we, so we get together and we got to find a place to live, right? So we find a trailer park. Uh, it's on the same road that goes to the that goes to the to the university, and um, we all go up there and we rent. So so I went from flea bag apartments to the projects. Now I'm in a now I'm in a, a, a white trash trailer park living. So, so that, that's that's my trailer, progression. Huh? Yeah, that's my road to the riches. See, now I'm getting rich. Now I'm in a trailer park. Now as long as that trailer. trailer had a white picket fence, you're good. You know what? The trailer had a floor in it, and and if we, we didn't have any furniture, we slept on the floor. Oh, at that age, goodness. at that yeah. age, I was I was like, I don't care where I live, I just want to be free. <laughs> I just wanted to eat and have a roof over my head, and yeah. and it was right on the way to uh, Edwardsville University, right down the street, maybe six miles. And I would get out there in the mornings with my books under my arm, and I'd hitchhike, and, pick, and you know, other kids at school would pick me up and take me to school, um, and. Um, so when I get in school, then it's a whole new ball game. I'm with, I'm with older people now. You know. What were you uh, studying? Uh, I, I was I going for a business degree. Okay. Yeah, and so um, so I, I started getting invited to co-ed parties and stuff. You know, so next thing I know, I'm smoking pot, I'm popping pills, I'm taking trips on acid. You know, I'm staying up half the night, I'm, I'm falling asleep in class. You know, and I'm I'm struggling, you know, and, and having a hard time. And um, I was living on mac and cheese pretty much every day of my life. Wow. You know, uh, I guess a lot of students probably do that or at least did do that. Yeah. And, um, 
It's ramen Finally noodles after, now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so after two years, I said, that's it. You know, I, I did okay in school, but I said, you know what? It's time for me to make my fortune. I, I'm, I'm quitting school. I'm taking the shortcuts. I don't need to stay in school like all these fools and finish out four years. You know, I, I, I basically, I knew everything about everything. I, I thought I did anyway. You know, you do at that age, you know, mm-hmm. it's 20 years old and I quit. And, um, Taking the world by the tail was a lot harder job than I thought. You know, making my fortune at 20 was a little harder than I thought it was. So I, uh, I, get, a, I get a job as a roadie for a band, you know, got my hair down to my shoulders. You know, we're talking, I've got bell bottom pants on, sandals. I got tie-dyed T-shirts on, you know, I got hair down to here, you know, hippie to the max, you know. And uh, so I get a job with a band. What what better job can you have? Because this band, they all had hair down to their shoulders, which not everybody liked people with hair down to their shoulders back then. I can promise you that the rednecks didn't for sure. But um, uh, so we th- this band played at college campuses everywhere. And one thing the roadies got was free drinks. Mm. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Yeah. So we'd go there. There was co-eds everywhere. We'd pick up girls and we're drinking like fools, you know? And I, I did that for a couple of years. And then I... Then I, I can't remember years. what I did. I worked someplace, and then, wow, in my in this little hometown next to my hometown called Collinsville, Illinois. And and I'm saying this because I'm going to tell you the names of everything because everything I'm telling you is the truth. Uh, so I'm in Collinsville, Illinois, eight miles from Granite City, my hometown. And um, I'm thinking, how can I get rich? How can I get rich? How can I get rich? <laughs> uh, so 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 this little bar. There's a little bar sitting on not Main Street, but one of the big streets in town and it had a little sign in it said for sale, little bitty, 40 feet wide, 60 feet long, you know, a little like a kind of had a high roof on it. You know, I thought, wait a minute here. I love to drink. What would be better than buying a tavern? Right. Oh, boy. But I thought, here's the catch. I'm going to buy a tavern and I'm going to bite all the hippies like me. I'll get their money and they don't usually cause any problems, you know, because let me tell you something. You got hair down to your shoulders in, in 1968 or 69. You try to walk in a bar with a bunch of pickup trucks and they'll carry you out of that place. Oh. So I thought, well, you know, these other guys want to drink someplace, too, and be and be safe. So I'll open a bar. I'll get all my booze free and I will get all the money from the hippies. I'll, I'll corner that market. I okay? never knew. I never knew there was. Yeah, there was so either. much, uh, so many problems for hippies back then. Yeah, you have no bad. idea. It was bad. Wow. It would be something like this. I, I could go into a store. I'm, I'm just give you a little sidebar here. I could go into a store like, let's say back then it was instead of Walmart, it was Kmart. I don't know if you ever. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I go to Kmart and I'd be walking down an aisle and I'd, I'd turn around and some guy would have on a hunting hat and a, and a camouflage thing and say, hey, sissy. Why don't you get a dress? Oh, with that <laughs> hair, you'd look a lot better. Wow. I ain't Kenya. I go in places I want to fight my way out. You know, it, it, it was tough. Unless I was in a college town where it was kind of accepted because a lot of people were like that. Oh, man. Rednecks and people like that hated people with long hair. Oh, wow. And so I had to be careful. So I said, okay, I'm going to get all these long hairs like me. We'll get in one long place hairs. and I'll take all the money. <laughs> so I, picked, I, I, I go to make the deal on a place and uh, – I, I didn't have the money to do it, but an old lady, I say old, 87 years old, and she was Italian and she owned it. Somebody in her family died and she had it mm-hmm. and uh, she wanted to sell it. And it was like $20,000, had all the beer boxes and everything in it, you know? And um, 
She said, well, look, she goes, you don't have the money. What I'll do, her lawyer said, I didn't talk to her. He said, she's going to let you do it for $250 a month. And I thought, whoa, 250 bucks a month. I'll never be able to cut that, you know, for a whole business, right? Mm -hmm, uh, yeah. But finally, I said, okay, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to do this thing. So I clean it up, get it all together and stuff. And, and um, I opened it and the word goes out, you know, because I knew a lot of people like me. And so I send the word out all over and all around. From the first night I opened, the place was so packed, there was a line down the street. Night wow. after night after night after night. So I went from living on boxes of mac and cheese to making 1500 bucks a week. That was in 1976. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I'm That's crazy. 26 years old. At 26 years old, later on, six months down the road, I go into the Cadillac dealership. No joke. Right there in count BB and B Cadillac. I bought a. I bought a. The the first year Seville was was out. I bought it right off the showroom floor. What? And and listen to this. So I. They told me to bring it back in in two weeks. They were going to do a check on it and everything, right? So I bring it back in two weeks and I got my, I got bib overhauls on and stuff, you know. And I was always a physical fitness buff. I was ripped all the time and in, in working out and everything and. Uh, I, I go to drop it off to the manager and stuff. And he goes, yeah, he says, uh, tell your dad your car will be ready. He said, uh, in about four hours. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> they couldn't believe that you know, a guy with hair down to here wearing bib overhauls, you know, and sandals probably could could own a new Cadillac, you know. That's... And I said, no, that's my car. And this guy, man, his jaw dropped. He goes, what? You know. So um, wait, what was the name of the bar? It's called My Old School. My and it's old a legend. School. It's a legend. I mean, people got married from the place. Really? They met, they got married. They, they, you can go online right now on Facebook, and there's a whole thing of friends of my old school still to this day. Oh, uh, wow. People talk about the days they had in this place. And uh, But, you know, I'm making money hand over fist. I got all the booze I can drink. Girls are everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm a big shot now because I own the place. You know yeah. what I mean? You got some status, you know what I'm saying now. You know, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the big man. Um so, but that it wasn't good enough. So something was missing. And I said, well, that's simple. I just need more businesses. You know, I need to make more money. 1500 is great, but why stop there? Wow. So I opened, by the time I'm 30 years old, four years later, I had five businesses open in town. Wow. I went in with crazy. a friend of mine and we opened up a really nice fitness center on Main Street. I, I kind of put my stepdad to work because that was the only way you could support my mom. And uh, I, I opened an auto body shop. I had a record service. I had a used car lot. And then I bought two motor homes. I thought, look, I love motor homes, you know. And I like to go, you know, and, 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 and go out and, and, and do things in a motor home. So I bought two motor homes and I leased them out of my body shop. People would come there and they, they paid $100 a weekend. Well, I'm getting both my motorhomes paid for free. That's the way I like to do business, right? Anytime I want, I can take it, but other people are paying for it. That's like, okay. that, there. there's new services called like RV share, like the Airbnb of campers. Is that right? And you thought of this in the 60s. Yeah, in the yeah. 60s. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, it was, it, was, it was about 70... 76, 77. Okay. Wow. That's, that's yeah. nuts. Because I was 26 or 27. And so I, I'm, you know, by then I'm making so much money, people want to loan me money. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm making big bucks and, and I got my fitness center and it's doing well and I got all these things, you know. So I'm 30 years old and um, basically drinking. I really didn't like pot that much. And I, so I quit doing all the pills and stuff. And one day, I'm getting to the good stuff, you guys. Uh, you, you oh, know, so just you're good, Hang man. tight. You're good. I'm getting to the good stuff. You're good. It's, so far, so good. It's going to get real bad. 
but don't worry, it'll get worse. Yeah, me, so so <laughs> far, you've done everything. Hope. So it's far, it's gonna you... get bad. It's gonna get worse, and it's gonna get good, and it's gonna get worse, and it's gonna be great. <laughs> so hang with me. So far, you've done everything right on the right side of the law, basically. I mean, as yes. far as businesses, yeah, that's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Keith, did so you have where, a question? Where would you say did, was there any kind of spiritual leaning at this point at all? No. None. No. Nobody around you that had a See, spiritual leaning? No. It's really strange because um, I was in that space where I was a wild child, you know. I'm talking sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. Huh. And I don't want any I, – I wanted to be my own boss, and I didn't want any competition from God. You know what I'm saying? I, I wanted to be top dog, and I didn't want any rules. I wanted to do it my way. So – so it, when I was 29, I'll get to 30 here in a second. When I'm 29, I was living in a little house, but God's hand was on me and I didn't even know it. So I'm living in this little house, right? And I, me and another guy are paying $200 a month. And uh, it was not too far from the bar. I could walk if I wanted to. Of course, I had my new Cadillac. I could, I could go in my Cadillac. And um, <laughs> one day a guy calls me up and he says, is this so-and-so? I said, yeah. And he says, um, do you know so-and-so? I go, yeah, that's, that's my uh, landlord. And he goes, well, he says, you're your landlord. And it was this girl. She was about, she was younger than me. And she got it. I think her boyfriend or husband got killed in the military or something. She got this house, you know. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, well, she's losing the house. He said, you want to buy it? I said, no, I can't. I can't afford a house. He goes, I'll make you a really good deal. I said, how good? He said, about $5,000. I said, down? He goes, no, for the whole house. Wow. And I said, wait a minute. They had an apartment upstairs, too, that was rented out, okay, and a full basement. And, and then he, I says, well, how much is it going to cost me a month? He goes, well, he says, is $50 a month too much? Oh, my goodness. Honestly, <laughs> you got a better deal. I believe it, you know. And I'm so, so, I, so I said, yeah, okay, I'll take it then. And I took it. I bought it. I owned a home. And then after a while, um, I said, well, heck, now i got property. Why don't I rent out two of these and get a, a big house? So then I buy a house with an in-ground pool, a double car garage, uh, two fireplaces. You know, I'm 29 years old. <laughs> my Cadillac, my five businesses. I'm just cranking and cruising all the time. And, um, and I rent out that other house. I rent it out and, and got two, two different uh, tenants in it. And then one day, I'm in my office in my bar, my old school. And uh, when I'm talking... Uh, you got to understand this. This bar held about 85 people, and we put 200 a night in it. Uh -oh. Okay. Wow. And there'll be <laughs> yeah. lines down the street. Okay. Gosh. All hippies, so, huh? Yeah. Well, a few straights got crept in there. We couldn't keep them out. <laughs> long, I told them as long as they, as long as they were nice, that they, they could hang, they could stay there with us. But yeah. they better not get louder. They're starting fights and stuff. <laughs> uh, so jukebox blasting. You you couldn't even hear. People make orders, and I'd go what? You know, five bartenders working, and um, and I remember that we would run out of stuff. We'd give me a vodka, something. I don't have any vodka. Give, give me a gin, something. Okay, well, so the, anything because any this, the secret ingredient to having a bar or a tavern work is that women come, and pound for pound, we had more of the most gorgeous women anywhere guys would come a hundred miles to come to my bar they would hear about it a hundred miles and they'd come in and stay in a motel and go to the bar till it closed and come back the next night on friday and saturday Jeez. but um just wonderful ladies came in there sweethearts beautiful so guys are always going to come you know and so i'm in my office one day during during just in the early evening right before the bar opens right before the hard stuff hits you know and um uh, 
one of my bouncers came in. He goes, hey, Danny. He says, how'd you like to try some cocaine? Well, I never tried cocaine before. I never even thought about it, really. He goes, man, you'll like it. And I don't know if you've seen cocaine or not. It's it's a white powder. Mm-hmm. And he had a little glass bottle, and he, he hits it on, on my desk, and he knocks out a little mound of it. And, you know, he whips out a, a, a razor blade and makes four nice little fat lines, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just to show me how cool he was, he had a $100 bill and he rolls up a $100 bill and he snorts two lines. He hands me the $100 bill. I snort two lines. And I said, you're right. I like it. <laughs> it. I felt amazing. You know, I was always a guy with a lot of energy, but now I'm like, whoa, you know, I, if somebody put some uh, nitrous in my tank here <laughs> and when I would drink and do it, I felt like Superman. I could do anything. I could stay up all night. I could go here, go. I could open more businesses with this stuff. You know, <laughs> I, I'm just wild, you know. So I love it. So I, I said, well, how much is this stuff? He says, it's $100 a gram. Now, I don't know if you know how much a gram is, but it's not much, hmm. especially if you share it with people. So right away, you know, I've got my friends with me and I'm giving them some and we're doing some and it's gone. I'm going, whoa, you know. So I get some more the next day. Pretty soon I'm doing a gram a day. Now that's wow. $700 a week. Okay. Oh, wow. uh, any way you figure it, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I was making good money, but I wasn't crazy about that. If I'd have been smart, I'd have just said, I'm going to stop this stuff. But I didn't, you know, it isn't like I made a lot of great decisions in my life because I made a lot of bad ones. So after a while, I said to him, I'm doing $700 a week and I'm sharing it with people and I'm having a ball and I love it. And I said, well, look, there's got to be a way I can get this stuff cheaper. He goes, well, there is. And I said, well, how's that? He goes, well, you need to buy in quantity. He says, when you buy in quantity, the price goes down. He says, let me tell you a little trick. He said, you can take the stuff and take some some vitamin B, something or other, and it's white just like that, and you chop it up and you put it in. It won't hurt anybody because it's vitamins. He says, you put a little cut on it, and instead of being 90%, it's 88. He said, you sell some to your friends. He said, you you got all these people in this bar. He said, sell it to some of them. Let them buy their own. And I thought, wait a minute. That sounds pretty good. So without even thinking, I opened a brand new business and became a drug dealer. Wow. That's simple. You know, I thought to myself, well, there's nothing wrong with this. We're all consenting adults. There's no kids involved here. I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, that's a lie straight from hell. Mm-hmm. I was breaking federal and state laws. It was against the law. But see, I didn't want to entertain that thought. I want to entertain the thought that what's mine's mine, and I want everybody else's too. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, okay, so now I can get all my booze free. I own a tavern. Now I got all my cocaine free. Wow. And we, I mean, I'm like, wow, this is what life's all about. You know, and... Um, so things go on, and, and uh, I'm, I'm doing coke all the time, getting it all free, selling it. And um, so then I get really ambitious, and I go, wait a minute here. A friend comes up to me and says, look, he says, there's some property over here in the town. He says, we can, we can get together. There's five acres. He said, we can get together, and we can open a massive nightclub that holds 1,800 people. This is no joke. Uh, 1,800 people on the inside. And now, if that, that's the fire law, you can probably put 2,500 in there. Uh, but the law said 1,800 people. So we get together, we go to the bank, and we sign a loan for $1.2 million. Wow. And, and the, the monthly mortgage was 20000 a month. 
Now here I was scared to death to pay two hundred and fifty dollars a month. Now I'm signing a piece of paper for twenty grand a month. You know, wow. so so I so I sell my tavern and I and I we it, well I wait it was under construction. It took it took six months or eight months to build it. It's, it's like it was twelve thousand square feet. We had a we had a a, a light show in there with with the latest stuff for, from from Europe and stuff with uh with uh. Uh, strobe lights and, and smoke. And, and I mean, it was one point, it was 125,000 just for the light show. It was incredible. Wow. So, and so I got rid of, I got rid of a lot of small businesses, gave some of them to my stepdad. And, uh, I sold my, my, uh, my fitness center and I bought a racquetball club in my hometown. It was 12,000 square feet, completely remodeled it. Now I had three lines of Nautilus, complete free weights. I had suntan beds and, and saunas and whirlpools. So I got a 12,000 square foot fitness center. I got a 12,000 square foot nightclub. And so I said, well, I'm going to stay with these for a while. And, you know, my idea was to be to be loved. My idea was to be thought of as something special rather than the guy that was rejected by my dad and by that by that girl's dad. It put such a scar on me. And it took me years to realize where the where the wheels actually came off. Where was it that that, that I started to step over the line and what caused that? And I think that the pain in my heart led me to so much to want to do certain things. And if you're listening out there right now, you may have fallen into the same trap by the devil and, and, and get hurt by somebody or rejected. And, and you don't necessarily want to, to get revenge, but you want to get even for sure. Mm. And, and it, so you can't think like that. I, you listen to my story as we go, and I'm going to show you how, how, how it came to pass for me. But so, um, so you had so much going on. Were you ever overwhelmed or anything? I mean, I've tried no, I starting did, well, a business. I just, and... I, did, I just did more coke. Oh, well, there you go. Energy, Were you, you know, ever uh, depressed from the cocaine? I've I've been on cocaine benders, and it was extremely depressing. I uh, so so at the nightclub, especially, we, we got the city to pass a new law because I can only stay up until one a.m. at the at my old school. Now this place was called Panama Jacks, and uh, huge, huge nightclub. And um, we got the city to let us stay up until three o'clock in the morning. So I got two more extra hours. Mm. So I would be in my own business. I didn't have to do anything. I had people doing everything then. So I, before I just had to tend bar and stuff when I was in a fledgling business, I would walk around like a big shot and dressed to the nines. And I, 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 would, I would take bottles of champagne to girls' tables and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. just to have fun, you know, dancing all the time, you know. I was a white guy that had rhythm. You, you didn't find too many of them, but I, I had I had some rhythm going. And, and uh, so I would dance the night away. But I would, I'm, I'm answering your question yeah. here. Uh, yeah. I'm getting to it. Yep. Uh, so I, I would do a bunch of coke at three o'clock in the morning when my bar closed and I grabbed some girls and I'd go to another city in another county that stayed open all night. Oh, they, I would go there and I would keep dancing and doing cocaine and they'd be doing cocaine. We'd walk out, it'd be daylight. Wow. You know? Yeah, I, I would get I would get hangovers. I would my head would be pounding and I'd swear I'm never doing this again. And the next day, as soon as well, as soon as the, the headache went away, and as soon as the the uh the um um all the pain went away, right back at it again. Mm. Over and over and over. Mm. You know, drugs and alcohol. The devil's really clever. You know, you know, drugs are basically in the Bible, they're, they're, they're potions and powders. They're witchcraft, actually, mm. a way for the devil to do demonic things in your life. I didn't know that stuff back then. Uh, but yeah, they, don't, it, they don't tell you that. No, no. This so, will, so this it's will like solve this. your problem. It's not that, 
you, they don't tell you the after or the what, what the consequences or the things you get with it. That's right. You hit the nail on the head, and here's what happens. It's like this. People listening, if you're doing drugs and alcohol, listen to me right now. I'm going to tell you the truth. So it's like fishing. Okay, when you fish, you throw your hook out, you catch something, you reel it in, right? Drugs are like that, you're, especially your initial time you use it. A lot of times you'll get the, your hook set in you right then, you love it. You never think of the consequences that you're going to get reeled in, mm -hmm. you know, that, that something's going to happen to you, that your destiny is going to change once that hook is set in your jaw. Mm. But that's the way drugs work. They're a lie straight from hell. They make you think that they're everything and you need them. In reality, they are they are there to destroy you. Yeah. They don't do it right away. It's like cigarettes. You know, they say, you know, each cigarette's like a nail in a coffin. Yeah. Well, trust me. Drugs are the same way. They, they, they slowly, slowly take you. Now, here's the sad thing. Women get on cocaine and they want it and they have to have it. Women sell their bodies and men steal. It's that simple. I had money, so I didn't have to do that stuff. But that's what happens. And, and uh, when people get hooked on it, they'll do anything to get it. So I, so I got all these businesses, and I move over to St. Louis, and I go to, I get a, a big condo by the Central West End because I'm just all about being cool. I mean, I partied with the big dogs. I, I was, a, I was a respected businessman during the day. I was a party animal at night. Um, I was just doing it. I mean, we. We would fly around in private jets, drinking champagne and playing backgammon. Uh, I would go on ocean <laughs> backgammon. Cruise. Yeah, you know, you know how far back that was popular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I would go on ocean cruises to Acapulco and spend ten thousand dollars for one week to be on the. I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but the ones that are above water cost more money. Your your cabin, if it's above water, I would get the top deck. Wow. There'd only be six of them on, a, on an entire uh, ship, and I would get one. It cost me 10000 in a week. Caviar every day, champagne. They just showed up in your room. You had a cabin. You had your own cabin boy and everything, you know, just you. You were like the king, you know. Wow. And uh, limousines everywhere it's we went. Like we're Scarface, we're, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. We are just partying. We're on yachts down in, in, uh, in Lake of the Ozarks at the lake. We're on yachts down there doing it, doing it and stuff, you know. And then one day, a couple of my friends came over to my condo. They rang the buzzer. I saw who they were. I said, come on in. I hit the button. They come up and they go, listen, you got to try some crack. Oh, you know? man. And uh, I said, well, I don't know. I don't usually smoke anything. They go, I'm telling you, you're going to love it. And uh, I smoked it. And they were right. I loved it. Hmm. It blew me away. I honestly felt like I took one big hit off of it and felt like my feet raised off the floor about six inches. Wow. That sounds kind of, you know, kind of dem demonic in itself, you know, like I'm levitating, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, but with the weird thing about, about crack is that you, your first hit that you get is called, and then, and then you try for three or four days round the clock, never sleeping, still doing drugs, trying to match the first hit. They call it chasing the ghost. Okay. Oh. So anyway, I started doing that. Now I, I, I would do it and, and my habit went to $2,000 a week now from 700 to 2000. Wow. Um, and I would just, before I was okay, I, I, I was a functional alcoholic and, and, and drug addict, but now, you know, in prison, there's a thing called a shot caller. You know what a shot caller is? 
Heard the term. The head of a gang could be the shot caller. If he puts a hit on somebody in prison, they're pretty much dead. He's the shot caller. He's the one. So in my life, I always felt like I had the authority. I was the man. I clawed my way to the top. I'm my own boss. Let me tell you something. It all changed. The drugs started calling the shots, not me. I, I, I couldn't hardly put it down. It started just owning me in a way that I'd never been owned before. I was functional before. Now, now I'm, I'm doing stuff like this. I would go out and I would go to the liquor store and I would buy $300 worth of booze. I would buy cases of wine, cases of beer, cases of champagne, cases of whiskey, you name it. And the reason for it was that I knew that I would be so high when I did my first crack that I, I would be too paranoid to go get the booze. And, and I had to have the booze with it. It's like the left and right combination, you know, and we would get it in two or three of my friends. We would hold up in my condo for days around the clock, no food, drinking phenomenal amounts of booze. And, you know, I started out to, to try to be happy to try to fulfill a dream in my life, to, to find security, to be respected. And, and this stuff just, it was like a poison that was eating me away. It was almost like you got snake bitten and the poison just starts, just starts devouring your flesh, you know? And it was like that. It, it started controlling me. And I, I was, I was in, I just, I couldn't do anything. And I started losing my businesses and I, I couldn't keep up. And so now we're going to get to some, to some heavy stuff. I had just opened a brand new tan salon. In the midst of all this, I opened a brand new tan salon in St. Louis in West County. Um, and um, I, I, came, I came late one evening to, to do a tan, you know, in my salon. I had the keys. I went in the back. I started to go in the back door. So I pull around and I start to go in the back door. And um, when I did, like six big black vehicles pull up flying up at me guys jump out had dea hats on dea on their chest they had bulletproof vest on had their weapons out they threw me over the trunk i had a bmw i had a bmw and a mercedes and along with my cadillac uh living large all the time you know and they throw me over the trunk they handcuff my hands behind my back they put leg irons on me they read me my rights and then uh they told me that i was going to do 20 years in a federal penitentiary for drug trafficking wow uh, they threw me in the back of one of the cars. They, um, I mean, I'm like, you know, you see it on TV and, you know, living it's another thing, you know. I, I knew I was in serious, serious trouble. And they what, took uh, me. Danny, excuse me. What what yeah. uh, year is this about? This was 1991. 91. Okay. Yeah. Were you ever I, paranoid? I, I started doing crack at 40 years old. Oh, and wow. in two years, in two years, it was gone. It, every, everything I worked for my entire life at 42 was gone. Everything. Trying to find happiness, trying to do it my way, trying to cut corners, trying to break the rules, trying to trying to be the big man on campus, you know. And uh, now here I am facing 20 years in a penitentiary, lost everything. Uh, and these guys, they take me. I'm going to give you some 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 stuff that you won't read in a book all the time or you won't hear about it you won't see it on tv you might see it on tv anyway so they take me and they take me to they take me to uh, a city jail in clayton missouri which is a real nice area in st louis area and they took me into this special area and they put me in this thing it was like a closet and it had a little seat in it when i sat down they shut the door and it was so tight it was against my knees i couldn't hardly move wow. you know so i hear all these guys talking and everything and then pretty soon they come and get me. And there's like 
15 agents, you know, they're the SWAT guys, you know, the DEA, the bulletproof vest, the guns and everything. And I, and I walk out there, you know, I'm, I'm just, I think of my hands are still chained behind my back, you know, and this guy steps up and I could tell he's the boss, you know, the captain or whoever he was. And he goes, listen, Cox, it's time for the games to be over. He said, you see this, this is the stuff we have on you. And he says, I'm willing to make this stuff go away. He said, we don't even want you. He said, but we want somebody you know really bad. Hmm. One of your buddies, they said, we want him. And uh, I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, he came unglued, screaming at me and everything. He goes, look, all you got to do is this. Let us wire you in, in, in a motel. Then you go and talk to this person and come back and we'll make this stuff go away. Once again, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, get him out. Can we cuss on here? Get him <laughs> out of there. Get his blank out of here. Mm. And uh, they took me into a, to a city jail. I spent the night there. The next morning, they took me downtown to the federal building in St. Louis, Missouri, and they arraigned me. And then the U.S. Marshals picked me up there and took me over to East St. Louis, Illinois, because I was from the Illinois side. You know, I'm federal because I've been going across the river back and forth. And that's, that, that's a federal automatically federal oh. when you do that. I, I thinking about it. Yeah, interstate and, and traffic. So, yeah. Yes. And so they take me, they take me to, to East St. Louis and they officially, they officially um, charge me there with uh, sales of over five kilos of cocaine. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, at first it was grams. And then, then when I started doing crack, I started, I had to go to ounces and then pounds and then, and then kilos yeah. to keep up. Man, I'm doing, I'm doing two. I mean, when I say two thousand a week, I might do four thousand a week, but I'm just trying to give you an average. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I wasn't productive working anymore. I was losing money and everything. It was sad because I had some great businesses. And so, here comes some really fun stuff for you. So they get me over there. So they take me to a county jail in um, in in Belleville, Illinois, which is right next to East St. Louis. Now, since you guys don't know what East St. Louis is, it's um. It's, it's, it's a really, really, really tough area and a very dangerous area. Uh, so what I'm saying is that in this jail right next to East St. Louis, all the real dangerous people that got in trouble went into this jail. Mm. They had a nickname for it, Gladiator School. Oh, you know? wow. Now, now at, this, at this time, even though I was doing drugs, I, I had my gym. I worked out all the time. I was 6'1", 200. I weighed in there at the thing at 202 pounds with a 32-inch waist. I had a black belt in karate. Wow. Uh, you didn't you competition. Missed, you skipped that whole part. Yeah, I forgot about it. So <laughs> I, I, I'd been in competition and fought in St. Louis and stuff, got my black belt. But my point is here that even, and I could bench press 300 pounds, I, all that stuff. And I was scared to death wow. because all the rules changed. There are no rules in jail. You got rules when you fight in the ring and stuff, you know, uh, you get knocked out or something, they take the guy off you and it's done, but it's not like that there. So they put me in a holding cell. First thing. Now, look, I'm telling you, I was so depressed. I wanted to die. Mm -hmm. I, I just thought it'd be best just to die. I was in depression. I, I would rather just die and be gone. Wow. There's no way out of this, man. I, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. So so um, really quick, though, you're you, you're probably coming down off a high now, right? I mean, were you um, did you have jonesing? A yeah. Were you jonesing? Were yeah. you detoxing? With Absolutely. All that? Yeah. So oh. that on top of all that. Listen to this. I would go to the gym, right? I would sit outside the gym and I would have a big glass with ice in it. This is how far gone I was. 
I would take a, a, a bottle of whiskey. I would fill that glass. You could just hear the ice cubes going pop, pop, cracking yeah, and stuff. Yeah. No water, just I'll just take whatever melts off the ice cubes mm. with straight whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I would drink eight or 10 ounces of whiskey and go in and work out. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. Or then I'd have to drink some coffee with it too, maybe. Or I might even snort some Coke and go work out. Oh but but I, I had reduced myself down to there. So when these guys pick me up, I, I can't get any whiskey now. I was doing this every day of my life. Now, I, I would drink a, a fifth or a, a liter of whiskey every day. There was wow. no problem with that. Wow. Doing probably, well, when I smoked, I would, we would do three or four of us together. We would do a whole ounce of cocaine. That's two grand for that. And then sometimes we'd do a lot more. But, uh, yeah, I was jonesing, sweating already. Uh, they put me in a holding cell. And I'm going to be graphic here a little bit so you can understand. And I, and I told you earlier, Jamie, that I want to tell some stuff about prison and county jails, not because I want to glorify it, because I don't want anybody to ever have to walk in my footsteps. And if you're listening today, I'm going to tell you like it is. Please don't follow on my footsteps. This ain't no joke. Jail is dangerous. You can be killed or raped or anything else. So listen clearly to me. Listen to me, especially if you're doing silly stuff like me, selling drugs and doing them, because you could wind up there. Mm. They put me in a cell, and it's so full I could be, I couldn't even sit down. Mm. There was there was guys that had been there the night before. There was bikers in there. There there was gang black gang members in there. There was guys from Mexico that were sitting in the corner that couldn't speak English. The toilet. So many people had thrown up on the toilet, you couldn't even use it. It, it, it was running down the sides with vomit. Mm. Uh, bikers in there that are laying on the floor so drunk that you they can't even stand up, you know, and I'm going, holy moly, uh, I'm in trouble now, mm. you know. So they they um, they come. How are we doing? On, we're doing okay on time? Oh, yeah, we're good. Okay. So, so they come to get me, and they pull me out of there. And they said, we're going to put – this is a holding cell I'm in now. So they're going to say, we're going to take you into a cell. Okay, so first they take me over, they weigh me, they measure me, they take what what clothes I had on. You know, I had my uh, I had my Converse uh, uh, Chuck stuff. Taylors. Chuck on. Taylors, yeah. Oh yeah, I, lo- I got some on right now while I'm sitting here. But, uh, oh, nice. I, I loved it. I had a tie, had a tie, had a tie dye T-shirt and some okay, cool yeah. jeans. You know, so they take that stuff and give me an orange jumpsuit. And you know, in a jail, they they give you these goopy looking blue deck shoes, right? Oh, you can't yeah, have yeah. any strings. And you know why you can't have any strings, right? You, you hang yourself. People hang themselves. It's so horrible, people. Listen to me. It's so horrible in there. And some people get treated so badly, they, they would rather hang themselves than to stay there. Mm. They, they'd rather end it. It's that bad. So I knew the jail was crowded and stuff. So they get me in my jumpsuit and stuff. And this guy, you know, they got keys that are like six inches long and about an inch in diameter and a big handle on them. And so he takes me into this thing and I'm in this long hallway. And it's, it's, it's uh, concrete blocks on the side and it's real wide and there's steel doors every so often. I could hear guys screaming and yelling. I'm going, holy man, I'm going to have to go in one of those doors in a minute. I don't know which one, but they all sounded the same. Guys are yelling. You know when that door gets open, you're in trouble. Wow. So here's what they gave me. They gave me they gave me a, a, a foam mat about an inch thick, okay? And I and I wondered why, because they have bunks in, in, in cells, right? So he gives me that, and he gives me a little sack. And in that sack, I got a little bitty toothpaste, not a big one, a little short one. You know what I'm talking about, like the kind you travel with. Mm-hmm. So I got a little tooth- toothpaste. I got a toothbrush that was in a little piece of plastic that probably cost a dime. I had a little piece of uh, a little bar of soap. I had a, a washcloth and a towel. Okay. So here I go. 
Finally, he stops at E block. And I could hear people through the door. I said, oh, man, this, this isn't good, you know. And uh, the way it works is he sticks his great big key and it goes, and this big, giant steel door opens. And there's guys everywhere and everybody stops. I mean, they're yelling and screaming. It's silence for a second, except for the TV. Mm. They're all looking at me and they're all sizing me up and everything, you know. And when you walk in, there's another, like, there's bars to the side and to the side and to the front with another door. So when the guard walks in with you, he locks the door behind us. And then mm -hmm. we're still in this little little area where it's safe for him. And there's a door. Because mm -hmm. any minute, he's going to open that door. And I'm going to walk in. And he's going to lock that one. And he's going to unlock and let himself out. So, I mean, I'm looking around. Every eye's on me. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I'm used to being the big man, you know, I'm, I'm big shot. I, I, I don't deal with losers like this, you know, this trash, you know, you know, I, I had thousand dollar lizard boots for crying out loud. You know, I'm wearing blue deck shoes now. Rick, <laughs> man, you're talking about falling from grace. Uh, so I, uh, he opens the door and I walk in and I, and, and it, it's divided into two parts. One part's called the day room where there's tables where you eat and there's a, your toilets there. I'll tell you about that in a minute. That's sickening. And then I, I see another set of bars back there and there's bunks back there. So I got my little, my little sack of junk and my little, my, my, uh, my mat under my arm. And I start heading back towards the bunks and some guy yells, Hey man, where are you going? Well, I said, I'm going to get a bunk. He said, there's only 16 bunks here. He said, oh, he said, there's 20 bunks here. He said, there's 28 of us in here. They're all full, man. He said, you're going to have to sleep out here on the floor. And I thought, are you oh. kidding? What's the deal? What, you know, they put me in a cell that they already know is overcrowded. So um, I know what to do. Inch I mat comes. And I, what? That's where the one-inch mat comes into play, huh? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so I, I saw a little spot against the wall. So I don't know the rules yet. I don't know what's going on yet. So I, I go over and I sit down on my, I had it still in a roll and I sit down against the wall. I look around, people are starting to talk again and stuff and, and they're sizing me up and whatever because prison is about uh, survival of the strongest. You know, there it's, it's not the money, it's whoever's got the most muscle or whoever's crazier. Mm. It, it's a little different. The rules are different in there than it is outside. And then if you've got people to to come with you and you get people to side with you and you can get three or four people, you can do anything you want. You're going to run the place, you know? So I sat down, I started looking around and I, um, I, I saw all kinds of people. I, I saw gang members, uh, black gang members shoving each other, pushing each other. And they were, uh, one of them, they had, uh, one of them had, um, uh, they had the names on there. I'll think of it here in just a second. They had two different gangs from East St. Louis and the Thundercats and the Metros. And uh, they were at it all the time. The TV's blasting and nobody's watching it. It's full blast. I got a guy on the phone cussing somebody as loud as he can. There's a payphone there. You know, I'm going, oh, man. You know, all these. Some guy had taken or some people had taken their T-shirts and torn them into little strips. And they had a, a line going across and they had underwear hanging on it. You know, I look around and there's a toilet in the middle of the day room. Now, when I say a toilet, I'm talking uh, an aluminum steel or, or, or stainless mm -hmm. steel toilet. OK. And in the top of the toilet where you only know where the tank is, it has a little wash basin in it. OK. Uh -huh. And then there's a, um, a shower stall right there. Now, you understand everybody in there had on a jumpsuit. Right. So if you had to go to the bathroom especially if you had to make a movement, 
you had to pull your jumpsuit down your ankles in front of 27 other men. Oh my I'll tell you something, if you're shy or if you're a woman, that's the way it is in there. And it doesn't, it, you know, it might get better in some places, but that's what you got to look forward to. Hmm. I'm telling you, I, I had a really difficult time to, to go to the bathroom. I, I, just, I held it till I was blue in the face to oh, even I go. I couldn't imagine. And people were, were arguing and cussing. And now I was cussing all the time like a sailor too. So that didn't bother me at all. And, um, uh, so I'd heard that you got to be careful in prison because guys will come up to you and they're plants and they, and then they're going to ask you questions and they can get stuff out of you. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll go tell somebody and then they'll get out and you, you'll get worse, mm-hmm. you know? So a guy comes up to me and he says, um, Hey man, how you doing? And I thought he's a plant. No question. Mm-hmm. They, they sent somebody to set me up. So I didn't even hardly want to talk to him. You know, I didn't want to be rude, but I thought I, I can't trust anybody. I got to keep my mouth shut in here. You know what I mean? I got to keep quiet, keep my mouth shut because I don't want to have to fight. I knew how to fight. But when you're in close quarters like that and there's more people on, of them than there is of you, you can get hurt really bad. So I thought I'm going to play smart. And if I have to fight, I'll do it when it's time. But I'm not going to I'm not going to egg anything on. I'm not going to cause any problems. And um, so I, I'm there a couple of days and I, and I get a hold of my lawyer, you know, and I'm on the phone cussing him saying, get me out of this freaking zoo, man. I can't stand this place. These people are crazy. These low life idiots in here. I said, get me out of here. Cause I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm something. I don't know why I'm there, but I'm something mm-hmm. anywhere I am. You know, I'm, I'm all about that. I, I'm all that in a bag of chips and I'm here with in this zoo, you know, and I'm telling him to get me. I says, okay. He says, this is a Thursday. I call him up. And he says, well, I, I said, get, I said, get me a, get me a, a, a bond hearing tomorrow on Friday. He goes, oh, I can't get you a hearing till Tuesday. I said, are you out of your mind? I can't do four days in this place. Hmm. I can't stay here four days. I said, I said, no, tell him what happened. He said, I can't do anything about it. So I cuss him and hang up on him, you know. So a couple of days go by. I'm holding my breath. Tuesday I go to court, and uh, they have a. No, I forgot I was going to tell you this. The, the guy, the DEA guy, the captain said to me, if you don't work with us, if you don't help us, we're going to come down on you with both feet. Okay. Mm-hmm. I forgot all about it. I'm going to have to interject that. So I go in the courtroom. They, they, they get me at 530 in the morning. They come. They take off my orange jumpsuit. They put back on my dirty clothes, my tie-dye T-shirt. I got my jeans on. I got my, my, uh, my Converse uh, you know, Chuck Taylors on. You know, I've been wearing them for a couple of days now. And they take me to the courthouse. And uh, I go in front of the judge. You know, uh, my lawyer gets up. And we had witnesses. And they all said I was a great guy. And I'd, I'd show up for court and all this stuff. And I'm going, yeah, see, that's who I am. I'm a great guy. Hmm. And they're saying all these things, you know. And, and so then I go, okay, I got this, man. I'll be getting bond here in a minute. So then the prosecutor gets up and he starts saying stuff. I go, what? That's me? You know, and he's saying all these things. I did this, I did that. And basically everything except, you know, hurt babies or something, you know. And the judge said, nope. He says, uh, I think you're a flight risk, Mr. Cox. He said, go back to your cell. He says, and wait for court. Uh-huh. I, I, I didn't know what to do. I thought, this just can't be. I mean, he wouldn't set a number, you see. I had, I had friends, if he'd have set it a million dollars, I'd have been out the next day. Yeah. They'd have put up 100000 for me, and I'd have been out. The and, judge said no. And, you, and the federal judge have, says no, it's no. Would you have fled had you got out? No. Oh. No, I knew they were going to I knew that they were gonna pick me up. Yeah. But you can't run from them guys. Yeah. Um, I hated it, but I, I knew at some time it would come down to that. And, and so uh, – they took me back. I, I was went into a pit of, de- of depression. I said, get another court, get another court date. I said, I heard it in a few days. They go ahead and 
they go ahead and, and they lower it, you know, they, and they'll let you out. They want to teach you a little lesson, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so the guy comes back again to try to talk to me on the first day. He says, hey, man, he says, you know, I got a bunk back there. He said, why don't you come back and talk? He said, I'll show you some pictures of my family and stuff. And I thought, oh, man, uh, I don't know if I'm going to fall for that or not, you know, go back to his bunk, you know, and he wants to show me pictures of his family. And so finally I thought, well, you know, I'm bigger than him. I'll, I'll take a chance. And so we go back there. I got to tell you this incredible story. This is in my book, by the way. This guy says, um, his name's um, um, Jimmy something or other. And he goes, um, he says, you know, I'm in here for murder. He said, a while back, he said that they picked me up for murder. Uh, a good friend of mine got murdered and they said I did it. He said, and I was in here years ago. And he said, um, he said, I got bond. I'm thinking this guy was up for murder and he got bonded. We're talking about drugs here and I can't get out. What the heck, man? Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, uh, he says, I got bond. He says, and then I got a great idea. He said, I was scared to death that I was going to go to get life in prison. So listen to the story. He said, so he said, I came up with a diabolical plan. He said, what, what I did is he said, I found a little city not too far from me. And I went through the newspaper and I found the obituaries and I found a guy about my age that just got killed in a car wreck. He said, so he said, I went huh? identity theft. Yeah. Well, this story gets great. (laughs) So, uh, so he, so he says, and, uh, so I go over to the courthouse and he said, I spent two bucks and got, got this guy's birth certificate. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Honestly. He said, so then he said, then he said, um, he said, I took my power bill and stuff and some bills I had and I whited out the name on it. And I put the name Jerry Jones on it. This is what the guy's name was that, that died. And he put Jerry Jones. He said he made enough copies that it looked, looked good, you know. So he, he said he had to have like, you know, two bills and at least a birth certificate or something. So he goes to the DMV and he shows them the birth certificate. He shows them these two things that match. And they go, okay. They take his picture. They give him a set of driver's license, okay. <laughs> so then he takes the new driver's license and goes to California, jumps bail takes off because he's up for murder right hmm. so he's telling me the story i'm going holy moly this is amazing so he gets there and he said he got a good job right off the bat you know he had a clear record they couldn't find a thing he ever done wrong this guy had a clear clean record wow. they couldn't find anything in his background check so they were happy to hire him he said he, they hired him he loved it there he worked on the docks and stuff and then they put him through college paid through all of his college oh for four gosh. years he's doing great you know and then one day he's on the docks and it was a hot day and he rolled up his sleeves and he was doing something. And he said that there was a truck driver uh, that pulled up to the docks and he got out and the guy started kind of pointing at him and stuff. You know, he thought, what the heck's with that guy, you know? And uh, just been years now, six years, seven years. And um, so uh, the guy, then the guy goes and gets on the phone. And the next thing he knows, there, there's a couple of guys standing there in, in suits. Okay. And they walk up to him and say, we're so-and-so from the FBI. They said, could you show us your identification, please? He showed it to him. They ran it and checked it out and said, man, you're good. Wow. And, but the truck driver's saying, no, I'm telling you, that's Jimmy so-and-so, I'm telling you. You know, come to find out, listen to this. Come to find out, uh, this guy was in a motel the night before this truck driver. And he was watching America's Most Wanted. No way. <laughs> and listen to this. And when you when you go to jail, the Jeez. first thing that they do in jail is they start they strip you down naked and they take pictures of your whole body. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, they get all your distinguishing marks, your tattoos, everything. I mean, anything on your body, they're going to get it, right? Mm-hmm. So they had all this stuff all in this guy's file. 
So this guy had an anchor on each forearm on his record. So, so on America's Most Wanted, they put the two anchors up there and said, this guy's got an anchor just like this on each of his forearms. And he had, it was a hot day and he rolled up his sleeves. And when the truck driver saw the two an the anchors on each sleeve, he said, that's the guy. The FBI went and, and ran his, they took his fingerprints and ran them. They found out he was that guy. They arrested him, running back. And I'm sitting here in the cell with him. He's telling the story. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's wow. crazy. Just oh goes to gosh. show you, you'll never get out. You won't get away with it for the, you know, you're, for, well, I can't even get the right words. <laughs> you can't run away from your sin, is what you're saying. Oh, there you go. Sins will find you out. Right? Yeah. yeah, there you go. Well said, Keith. <laughs> So then I get another, I get another uh, a bond hearing, and I go in. The same thing happens again, two in a row, and I am just, I don't know what to think because we're talking. I may never get my my whole idea was I got to get out and find some women, get some coke, and get some whiskey and party for a while and think about what I'm going to do. That was my thinking. I, I need some drugs, man. I need some whiskey. I'll just drink it straight. I don't even need the ice this time. Yeah. You know, I'll just drink it down. Mm. But I couldn't, I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out. And I, I was craving it and I was, I couldn't think, I couldn't focus. I'm cussing and cussing my lawyer. I'm cussing people. And you know, the TV's blasting. These guys are playing cards and they're slamming their cards down on these metal tables, driving me crazy. And, um, so I started getting, I started getting, um, I started getting just so depressed that I, I just, like I said, I felt like I wanted to die. And then one day, maybe a day or so later, um, the the guy comes in with a mail. The guard comes in that big door, clunk, clunk, and he shuts it, locks it. And he's standing in those bars there, see? And uh, he's handing mail through the bars. And he, he says, Cox. And I went, what? Something for me? Because I hadn't got any mail yet. And I, I was I was surprised, you know? So I go over and I get the letter. And as soon as I touched the letter, it was like an electrical shock went up my arm. And it, it was so prominent that, that I actually, my eyes started watering. So I go back to my area. Cause look, once you get an area in jail, that was my home there. When I rolled my mat out, I owned that. And if I wanted to keep it, if I had to fight for it, that was my home. Hmm. I, I couldn't let anybody take that space away once I claimed it, see? So I go and I sit on my mat in my home. And when I reached with the letter over to the other hand, the shock went down the other arm. Wow. Now I'm sitting there you know, in, in jail. You're trying to be cool. You, you can't be crying and stuff, you know, because that's a sign of weakness. <laughs> and so so I, um, I opened the letter slowly. My hands are trembling. My eyes are watering. And when I opened it up, I, I knew who it was from, but I didn't know the person well. And I thought, what are they doing writing me, you know? And so... Um, the first words I read were, Danny, no matter what you've done, God still loves you. Mm. And I'm telling you, just like that, God pulled me out of my body. He pulled my soul out of my body. And I went to a place that was so quiet, so beautiful, so serene. And I, I had waves of love 
coming over me just like at the ocean. It was, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't hardly breathe. Wow. And, and I knew I was in the presence of Jesus. And, and uh, I didn't know what to say or I didn't know what to do. But, but the love was like, uh, I'm telling you, the love was so, I wanted everybody to hear this. And it's hard for me to explain it because it was such a, a supernatural experience. I felt the love for me, number one, that I never felt before, but number two, the love from Jesus was so powerful. He didn't just love me. He loved every particle of my body because I realized that he himself knitted me together in my mother's womb. He knew everything about me. He, I was precious to him. He loved me so much. And I'm, I, I didn't know what to do. I'm, I'm stunned. I'm trying to think. Now, you know, when you're in the presence of God or Jesus, you don't have to talk. If you just think he knows what you're saying. You know, you got to just think it. And um, then all of a sudden, a screen comes up in front of me, just like a slideshow. And guess who was on that slideshow? Me. And he's, Jesus showed me slide after slide after slide of me doing despicable things. You see, when, when I went into jail, I had sinned so long that, that, that I didn't even know I was sinning anymore. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be good at being bad. That's all I cared about. You know, I'm not thinking about doing stuff right. I, I, I'm not a, I don't follow the rules. I'm a rule breaker. That's who I am. You know, all of a sudden I see this stuff. Let me tell you something. When you see the sin you've done in the presence of Jesus, it doesn't go over very well. And I'm watching this thing. And I, I so I'm crushed on one side by shame and guilt in front of my God. And on the other side, I'm getting slammed with waves of love. And I'm just crushed. And I don't know what to do. And they just keep coming and coming. He's showing me my whole life one after another thing. I didn't even think about because because the devil was able with the drugs to put a veil over my eyes. I, I couldn't see the truth anymore. I, I couldn't hear it anymore. When he pulled back that, that veil, I saw it so clearly that it crushed me. I didn't know what to do. And finally, I just thought, Jesus, could you ever forgive me for my sins? And boom, just like that, I'm back in my body. Except this time, when I looked around, I saw a complete cell full of people that Jesus loved as much as he did me. And I thought to myself, I'm the real sinner here. I'm the real loser, not these guys. I I was a chief sinner. I I, I was an enemy to the cross. But God hunted me down, and he found me, and he wanted me to be restored. Uh, And and I I just had tears in my eyes. I I got up, and I got on the cell phone when I could get, I had to get in line. I got on the cell phone. I started calling all my friends saying, you won't believe what happened. I just saw Jesus. I was under all that stuff. And, and they're crying on the phone. I mean, girls I've been hooking up for years with, guys that, you know, I partied with. They're crying on the phone. I'm talking about Jesus. Some of them gave their life to Jesus right away. What? My jaw, my jaw's like sitting on the ground. You lift up the name of Jesus and he'll bring him to him. And I, and I'm go, whoa. And I didn't care anymore. I I was, I was so brave. I was a new creature in Jesus Christ flat out. I had a desire to, to, uh, to read the Bible. I mean, it was, it was a supernatural life changing experience. And, um, I just want to tell everybody out there. Go ahead. So just this like split second thing happened and that's how quick it was for your life to change well here's what i here's what i feel i don't know if it was a split second now you have to understand i wasn't in time anymore i was in eternity there is no such thing as time and eternity mm-hmm. and what i mean is i i left my body and not one person there knew it nobody saw me leave nobody saw anything and i think i i, I don't i think that in eternity you can go and come back in not even a second 
I yeah, mean? yeah. No, how I long just was mean... I in, t- in eternity? I don't know how yeah. long I was in presence with Jesus, but it felt like a long time. And he made his point good enough that it just it changed <laughs> my life. Uh, he, he wanted to make sure that I saw how bad I'd been because I didn't really, I didn't think about it anymore. That's but let me tell incredible. you something. I searched everywhere for happiness. I searched everywhere for joy. I searched everywhere for love. I did it on ocean cruises and in, in, in private jets and limousines, uh, partying, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, one night stands. I looked everywhere except one place. I'd never looked up mm. until I found Jesus. I'm going to tell everybody out there right now, listen to me. You can't buy something that's free. Huh. Happiness is a free gift from Jesus Christ. Mm. You don't have to pay for it. He already paid for it for you. All you got to do is receive him and you'll have the same joy that I have today, the same passion for him. And it's been 30 years, my friends, and I still feel the same way when Jesus came. And uh, you can feel that same way, too. Just call upon him today. So So, who, who, who wrote the letter? Are you getting to that? uh, Well, it it was, uh, it was a friend of mine that I knew, but I just didn't know her real well. Hmm. I, I, I was really shocked. She wasn't in my circle or anything, you know what I mean? So that's why I'm shocked that somebody out of my circle sent me this. And I talked to her later on in years and stuff, and, and she said God put it on her heart. And God used that. He anointed her when she wrote the words. Because I never mentioned God unless I cussed, unless I was cussing his name out, you see. I, I, I purposely separated from anybody that w- w- wanted to talk about Lord or anything. I mean, I didn't hate God. I just didn't feel like I needed him. Yeah. I, I, I never like hated him or anything. I just didn't want any competition from him. I'm going to be my own God, and I didn't want any competition from him. But then I turned into so humble. I wanted everything about the Lord. I, my life changed that fast. I'm telling you, Jesus is for real people. Mm-hmm. He's the real deal. What and the... I, even, though, even though I lost everything that I'd worked for for 42 years, I have Jesus. And let me tell you something. The most important thing in your life is Jesus, not your accomplishments, not not what you earned and paid for, and not any titles. Being a child of God and uh, having Jesus as your Savior is the number one thing. That's the most important thing in life. I had to find it in a tough way, and, and I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't recommend anybody have to go down the path I did to find Jesus because He's waiting for you anyway. He's been waiting for you your entire life. Mm. All you got to do is ask Him. To be your savior. Yeah. What, so, uh, Danny? What happened that day in the in the cell? You have this moment. You get up and you want to get on the phone. Did anybody in that place recognize that something was happening to you? No. They Nobody. were in their own world. They were in their own world. Still, still, in, they had they had the same veil over their eyes as I did. Except mine was removed now. And that's when I saw, you know, I had been talking about these guys like they're, you know, all trash and everything. But when God changed me in my heart, I, I felt so sad that, that that I called them that. The Lord pointed out to me, you know, they, I love them as much as I love you, even though they're not with me right now. I love them, too. And I knew I couldn't say anything bad about them from that point on, hmm. you know. Wow. Uh, so my heart had changed. I, I had love in my heart. It was totally different. And then uh, in just a little while, I'm going to tell you something real funny. God has a sense of humor. Uh, I, I got moved to another cell. And in this cell, I had a two-man cell, which was great because I, I had my own bunk, okay? So I, um, I'm sitting there. Now, this is the first time that I remember God speaking straight to my heart. I want you to listen close. So here I am. I've been turned down for two, for two bond hearings. I'm facing 20 years in the federal penitentiary. 
I, I can't get bond. I can't get out. Uh, it's a nightmare for me. So I'm sitting on my bunk and I hear Jesus say this to me. You got to listen closely. He said, so I, I think well, to myself, okay. He said, you I, tried I things your way. They don't have a How'd that work out for you? Thing called, um, <laughs> and I, and I, I said, like a little really? Lord, in, in, really? You want to say that to me? And I knew it was funny, but it was pretty hard to swallow. So I go down and I say, I need to tell the guy, I got to see the PA. What for? I said, well, I got some problems. So he said, down to the PA. I told him, problems. He said, we'll schedule to go out and see what he said to me. He says, yeah, especially. He said that to me. He let me think about it. They come and get me. Of course, you know what? This time, I don't get to go in my three or four day old outfit. I got to go in my orange jumpsuit. They chain me all up like a fool. And they take me to the specialist right there in that town. And uh, of course, they, it's really weird. When they take you out, they put you in a wheelchair and they lay a little towel over your hands and your feet where you got the chains on. Like nobody's going to yeah. know. If they, in your orange the, jumpsuit. You know, yeah, you got chains all underneath there and you got an orange <laughs> jumpsuit on and they're, you know, and they got guns and stuff in it. So sneaky. You know. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty deceptive. Uh, so they take me in. Guy looks at me and goes, yeah, you got a problem. Okay, so you're going to need some, you're going to need some care. So I go back and so I get this great idea. Okay. The judge won't give me a bond, but what if I need medical attention? So I call my lawyer and I said, look, they've already said I have to have help. Go to the judge and get a bond for me to get medical attention. I'll get out that way. And I thought, this is it, man. I'm, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get some whiskey. No, no, I haven't even thought, take that back. At that part, I didn't care about whiskey or any of that stuff. I just wanted to be free and get outside and get some fresh air. So, so the, um, so my, my lawyer goes and he goes and to the hearing and stuff. I didn't have to go to this one. So I call him. He goes, well, I got good news and bad news. And I go, okay, what is it? He goes, well, the good news is that the judge agreed you need medical attention. I said, yes. And he said, I said, what's the bad news? He said, the bad news is he's going to send you to prison to get it. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, yeah. He said, they got a couple of prisons in this country that have hospitals in them. Oh, he said, he's going to send you to prison. I said, I haven't been to court yet. I can't go to prison. He goes, you're going to prison. Sure enough, uh, about a week later, they call my name at like 5:30 in the morning. Uh, they come and get me. They, they they take me out. Of, they don't put. They take me out of the orange jumpsuit and they give me some like khaki clothes. Two marshals are waiting there for me. The marshals chain me up and put me in the back seat of a car. They take me to a, to an airfield about 30 minute drive from where I was, and we pull into here. And I'm telling you, it was like a scene out of a movie. At the far end of the runway at this airport, there's this big plane back there. We call it Con Air. You know, you might have seen the movie. Like the movie. That's, oh, this I is the truth. And it was guys standing around with M1s and a big circle. They had go to hell glasses on, you know, the kind with the mirrors on them and stuff, just like in a movie. They're everywhere in a circle. So the, the plane's at the very back of the runway. And uh, this is all for you? Huh? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going oh, there. Sorry, go ahead. So, so the point is that they had cars everywhere. You couldn't go to that particular place. That was reserved just for inmates. So I get out there, and, and this thing had a, had a tail loading thing. So a tail thing like came down out of the back of the plane with steps on it. And, and there's a semicircle around the plane of buses and cars and everything you could think of full of inmates, you know. And um, – this is my first trip to a prison. I'm scared to death. You know, as scared as I was and hated to be where I was at, at the gladiator school, I, I, I kind of gotten used to it and I did, didn't really want to, to go to prison, you know, so but I had to go. And so they pull up there with me 
Next thing you know, we see a whole trail of people coming off of the plane down this back gate. And you can hear change just every step. Chunk, chunk. So everybody's taking one step at a time. Hmm. Chunk, chunk. Lines of them. They come down. Marshals find out who they are. They point them over to different people. First, they, 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 uh, they search you. Then they send them over to, to a vehicle waiting on you. They search you. And then they put you in and you're off and gone. So they're coming down. Men and women together. They're coming down, coming down, coming down. Finally, after they got the last ones out, it was time for them to start loading. So when they got to me, I, 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 they get me out of the vehicle. They take me up there. And the marshals are in, in a semicircle. And they're, they're searching you. And I mean, they search you good, too. They put their hands everywhere, whether you like it or not. And uh, I happen to get a woman. And uh, so she searches me, you know, and, and signals that I'm okay. And I, and I got my hands, I, it, it, they have a thing called the waist chain, you put a chain around your waist, and then they chain your handcuffs to that, to that waist chain. So you can't bring your hands up more than maybe four or five inches, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I'm all chained up, I got leg irons on too. And uh, so now it's time to hear the chains going up the ladder. Chunk, 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 chunk. And when you get up to the top, they got two marshals standing there with 45s in there. And, and there's, they got it in their holster, you know, and they're pointing at you where to go. So there'll be a marshal halfway down, a marshal way down. If you're a woman, you go all the way to the front. And they have two women marshals down there because, you know, guys, the poor women, man, the guys, you know, the guy, as the women walk by, the guys are saying all kinds of stuff, you know, uh, and they get the women all the way in the front They get the two women marshals there to, in the, in, and leave them in a, in a, in a little aisle seats there that nobody can come past that. And then they say, you here, you there. So there's three seats on each side. They're filling this whole thing up. And, uh, we started like five 30 in the morning. Okay. So now it's about noon already. And, uh, we're going and going and getting everything all done. And, um, Finally, I get in my seat. The marshals, they, they load it up, get ready to go. All the guys are standing out there with their, with their M14s and shotguns and stuff all around the plane. The plane takes off. We get in the air, you know, and Marshall said, everybody's going, we got to go to the bathroom. We got to go to the bathroom. How are we gonna? He says, everybody wait. He says, we got to get a certain altitude. When we get up to that altitude, we'll let you go to the bathroom. So in the very back of the plane, by the tailgate, there's a bathroom on each side. Okay. Bathroom on each side. And uh, finally, he got there and he started with the back row. He says, okay, who has got to go to the bathroom? Well, you can't hardly get out of your seat. You can't, you can't reach up and grab the, the top of the seat like you normally would in a plane. You lift yourself right out, right? You can't do that. And then you step on the guy next to you, you know, and you don't want to be making too many guys mad because you don't know who you're dealing with here. You know, it could be murders, anything. And so um, uh, finally, it was my turn. And I finally got, got out of my seat, stepped on the guy's toes next to me, apologized four or five times. And I go back and the marshal is standing there and he's got both the doors wide open and he's got a heel holding each door. OK, so you can't go to the you, you got to go to the bathroom. He can watch you. Now, I don't know if you ever tried to go to the bathroom with somebody watching you. It's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> and I had to go really bad. And I thought, oh, God, please let me go. Because if I if I have to turn away, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and finally, uh, you know, I, 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 you can't just you can't even get your clothes down. Hardly. So I had to lean. I leaned forward with my head against the wall in kind of a tri tripod with my feet here as wide as I could get them, my head on the wall where I could finally work my underwear, make me work my pants where I could go to the bathroom and stuff. You know, and I thought, my God, what would it be like on here if you had to have a movement? How do you get those pants down and get them back up? You know, and especially with this guy watching you. You know, it. I mean, I'm telling you, it's probably things you never thought about before. But that's what you got to go through if you're in prison. These guys own you they don't make it easy on you and and they put you in humiliating situations especially when it comes to bathrooms and showers and stuff you know the the, the most uh most people are modest in those areas and i'm telling you there's no such thing in prison you're going to be put right on on front street on everything you do so we so we fly to prison um 
we get we get to the prison. Uh, I, I, same scenario out there at, on Con Air. I get off the runway, you know, and uh, they were all out there again, searching us again, putting us in vehicles. And I got on a bus with about 20 guys, and I was in. Uh, they take me to uh, a, a prison in Minnesota. So now I'm in Minnesota. I, I'd already been in chains for probably 15 hours already before I got there. Uh, tired, hungry, everything. So I get there. And uh, it was starting, the sun was almost ready to set. And, and when we get there, you know, I, all the razor wire, uh, you know, the guards and towers staying, you know, with, with, the, with the M1 trained on all of us. If Kate would make a mistake, these guys got shotguns, two rows of them. We get off the bus, you know, and then they, they heard us through the gate. And once we get on the inside and they can shut all the gates, then they sent us to a place called R&D receiving and dispatching. And they took all of our chains off. Okay. So after we get all of our chains off, they assigned us to a unit in the prison. And then uh, this prison had a little bit of freedom in it. I could actually go outside, which was a little scary at first. I wasn't getting in trouble for that. And I remember I, I, I sat down on a bench and I sat down just in time. I could see the sun going down over the horizon. It looked like a big orange rubber ball. And I, I sat there and tears went down my cheeks. And I, and I thought to myself, number one, how did I get here? But when's the last time I actually what's the sunset or anything like that because all the drugs and alcohol I had done all my life, I, I never did anything that was like that. It was such a special thing, you know, mm -hmm. and then I got up and I, I went in and went in and uh, met my bunkie got off work and, and he came in and, you know, the, my cell made her bunkie, whatever it was a two man cell. Uh, <clears throat> I talked to him for a while and he was okay. He was a little younger than me, but he was a decent guy. And, um, so then the next day and every day after they started calling me down and taking me and um, you won't believe this. Where do you think I'm in Minnesota now? Where do you think that I went to the hospital? The Mayo Clinic. Can you believe? <laughs> Let me tell you something. When you go with God, he goes first class, baby. <laughs> he had me. These people wouldn't let me go to a specialist in town. So they sent me to the Mayo Clinic. Can you believe that? Got to go to the Mayo Clinic and got to see the finest doctors, some of them in the world. Wow. Uh, God was taking care of me. And, and uh, you know, I, I had been walking with the Lord. I'd been studying the Bible, uh, doing all kinds of stuff, going to, I, I mean, I was on fire. I was going to every Bible study I could go to. You know, you don't always get to do it, but if you can, uh, I was going to church when I could, maybe once a week, if we got a chance, we would go. So uh, I'm doing all that. And so, uh, in the midst of all this stuff going on, taking me in and out and running tests on me and stuff. And um, one night I was, it was about six, six o'clock and, and my, uh, my cellmate says, uh, he's, he's getting dressed. And, and he, had, he had a nice set of clothes on, you know, I mean, still prison clothes. I go, where'd you get those? He goes, well, these are my visiting clothes. He said, down at the laundry, if you're doing something special. He says, if you're doing something special, he said, they'll give you one. If you, if you get a, if you're going to have visits, they'll give you one set of really nice clothes because it's all this uh, Air Force and, and Army stuff. You know what I'm saying? Oh. The stuff that they got in warehouses for years, they give you that as you're a prisoner. Oh. And I said, well, where are you going? He goes, well, I'm going to hospice. And I go, what's that? He goes, well, he says, he says we got a hospital here. And, and I'd been to one part of it, but I didn't really realize how big it was. He said, we got a hospital here, you know. And he said, there's, there's a chronically ill and terminally ill patients in there. And he said, um, he said there's, a, there's a handful of us that go to this meeting with the chaplain, and, and we try to help those guys out. Hmm. He said, some of them really need a lot of help, and they don't have enough staff. And I go, wow. And uh, he said, uh, would you like to go? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I probably can't get you tonight, but you want to go next week? And I said, sure. 
So next, so I went down to the laundry and got myself some nice looking clothes too, right? Because I knew I was going to get some visits because it'd be the first time that my family or anybody could see me face to face. Because in a prison, you can visit face to face. In county jails, you have to you have the glass partition and a phone. They don't always work right. Guys get mad, slam them down. You can't even hardly hear, you know. So, um, so the next week, I go over and uh, I go to this hospice meeting, and. Um, I listened to the, to the chaplain and stuff, and he asked who I was, and I told him. And uh, he said, well, how much time did you get? And I said, well, I didn't get any time. I'm pre-trial. He said, you're pre-trial? Hmm. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he said, I, I can't let you be in this if you're pre-trial. And I thought, wow, man, you kidding me? I'm volunteering. So I said, well, can I train? He goes, well, you can train. He said, but you can't help. I said, okay. I said, I'm willing to learn. I mean, I had a heart to serve. God turned me around from I'm all that in a bag of chips to I can't wait to help someone. Mm-hmm. And um, my heart had changed so drastically. And I, so I, <clears throat> he said, okay. So he starts training me. I trained for three weeks, right? And these guys are telling stories about who they work with, their assignments at the hospital, guys that are terminally ill, chronically ill and whatever. And so I go to this meeting. You're going to love this. I go to this meeting and uh, one of the guys said, uh, Chaplain, he says, uh, I'm getting out next week. Chaplain says, okay. And another guy goes, yeah, he says, I'm transferring to another prison closer to home. Now, they only had 10 guys. There's a 1,000 people population. They only had 10 guys in the whole prison that would volunteer to help somebody. I thought that was sad anyway. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden now, these guys, these guys had a full load, each one of them, who they helped. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, because now they're down to eight. All of a sudden, I see the chaplain turn his head, and he looked right at me, and he said, you still want to serve? And I said, yes. He says, I'm going to talk to the warden tomorrow. Pulling you off the bench. <laughs> in the game, baby. Off the bench, <laughs> in the game. Sure enough, I went home, almost tears in my eyes, thanking God. And then the guy that, that took me there, he went home. He, he got out. And so I, I went on, and um, I was thanking God. And uh, so the next meeting day, he got me cleared through the warden. And the next meeting, they assigned me to some guys, and I, and I went in, and I started helping. And some guys some guys that had uh, strokes, they couldn't even feed themselves. And, mm. and the nurses did all they could. They were wonderful people, the nurses were. But they were so thankful for the help that we gave them to help. Some guys couldn't write with uh, strokes, and we would write letters to their – they would dictate, and we'd write it to their families. And mm. we helped them in any way we could. If they were if they were really bad, we would take them out on the yard in the wheelchairs and put a blanket on them, especially if they were terminally ill or something, you know. Uh, these guys just didn't have anybody anymore. We were their, we were their family. We yeah. were the ones that cared about them. They're just dying alone in prison. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you're so, still pre-trial at this point. You still, still have. Got... I've been in six months. Wow. And uh, I've been in six months now. Still hadn't been to court, and I'm in my first prison. And then um, a little while later, I. Uh, I get notified by the chaplain to come down. I, the, my guard said, come, the chaplain wants to see it. So I go to, to the chaplain and he goes, oh, we got an inmate that's dying. Uh, and uh, we need a 24 hour watch. And, and the way it was, was that the people that volunteered uh, had promised that if somebody was dying and they only had a few days left, that we would stay with that inmate and never leave that inmate until they passed. Wow. That that inmate would have somebody there that cared about them. Yeah. And they could look and see you all the time and not be in fear. And um, it was such a strange thing because uh, uh, the I, I took a slot and, and uh, you know, they, they were four hour slots, you know, around the clock. And I took a slot 
And then somebody came to me and said, Danny, I, I can't make my slot this day. Will you take mine? And I said, sure. And I knew who this guy was. He wasn't one of my patients, but I knew who he was. Uh, just to show you how much I've changed. His name was Mr. Taylor. And he was uh, terminally ill. And he only had a few days left. He had cancer. And I knew he'd given his life to the Lord talking to, to his helper. Hmm. And he was a black man. But you know what? I didn't see a black man. I saw a person that God loved as much as he did me. There was no black. There was no white. I loved that man. I was so thankful that God let me be there with him. Mm. And um, when I came in, I remember it was, I had like the 8 to 12 shift, you know, and it was dark outside. So I, I, I flipped the switch and he says, Danny, he said, will you, will you leave the light on tonight? You know, and I said, sure. And I turned on the light. And he was just laying on his bed peacefully. And he, um, I, I was praying for him under my breath and reading the Bible. And um, about an hour later, I, I hear his breath slow down. And it's slower and slower and slower. And as I'm watching him, I, I saw him sank off. And, he sank off into eternity. He passed right in front of me. Hmm. And uh, I said, Lord, I, I, I don't know why you picked me to be here. What what reason do you have for me to be here? The other guy was already set. You switched it. There must be a reason, something you're showing me or telling me. And um, so he died. And then I, I had to go down and tell them. And they come rushing in. And they, they, they take the pulse. And they do all this stuff. And then they, they make out a report the time. Because, you know, this guy was going to, his, his family didn't want him. He could have got out. He could have went home on a compassionate release, but nobody wanted him. Oh, wow. How sad. And so he had to stay there and die. And so that's what we said. We we made an oath, all of us, that we would be the family hmm. of these forgotten men. We would be there to the end, every one of them, and never be out of the room one second while, while they were in that condition. Hmm. And, and the Lord took me so far. I just want to tell everybody right now that I don't know where you stand with the Lord, but I can promise you this. If you're willing and you'll make yourself available. I don't care where you are. God will give you assignments to help people, to share his love through you. If you'll be his hands and his feet, God used me throughout prison. He used me everywhere because I was willing. I wasn't anything special, but I was willing and I was available. And I want you to think about that. If you think that there's nothing you can do, you can. Ask the Lord to show you what he will use you if you're not doing anything right now in ministry. And so I was there for a while and I got and I got some some stuff done to me. And next thing I know, uh, I get a thing. They say, well, you're leaving tomorrow on the plane again, taking off. So this time and I'm, and I'm telling you some nuts of bolts of prison. So they, they take me out of they chain me up. They go to the same process. They throw me on a bus. They take me out. Same thing. Guys out there with shotguns and guns and stuff. I wish I could get I had some video of this stuff. It'd blow your mind. Load up into the plane, except I didn't know this. So this time when I'm going, when I get on the plane, they stop and pick up, take off, pick up, take off three or four times. And it's about nine o'clock at night now. I mean, I've, I've been in chains for hours on the plane. So we get to Oklahoma City and they land in Oklahoma City. And next thing I know, they're telling us all to get off. Well, I'm, I'm not in Oklahoma City. What am I doing there? Well, I find out later on that, 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 that the plane flies in one place. And if you didn't, if you're not to your destiny, when you get to Oklahoma City, you're staying the night. So I had to go to another prison, see? So anyway, they got me off of there. They get us in a bus. Now, we hadn't eaten for hours and we're in change. So we get on a bus and it's a two-hour ride. Uh, we go for two hours. I'm about ready to, 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 to pee down both legs. I can't stand it. So we, we finally get in front of this giant prison, razor wire everywhere, same thing with guards and stuff. And, um, and then we sit there for like an hour, like they didn't know we were coming or something, you know, like we sneaked up on them. 
And uh, so they bring us all these sack lunches. And in, in the sack lunch, it had two sandwiches, one a cheese and one a salami and a little snack and a little juice in there, right? So, you know, I, I can't really move my hands, but I'm thinking, I got to get the salami and the cheese on the same sandwich here, you know? <laughs> How dare <laughs> they? I, I could never figure out why they had them on different sandwiches. Why not one big one? Why are you going to have one of each, you know? So I finally worked my way around and got it on one sandwich and, and ate that and drank that. Went in. It was a nightmare. It was a. We went to a prison, side of a prison, got locked down in there, uh, 200 guys or whatever. Took them. I, I didn't get my chains off till 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd probably been in 15 hours already, something like that. And uh, so I finally get all that stuff off. I got, I got assigned to a cell there. Uh, so I, that's my second prison. So I've been in six months. Now I've been in a county jail and in two prisons. And then I stayed there. And I wound up staying there two weeks. Okay. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't get to go back where I'm supposed to go. I got to stay there two weeks. Finally, they called my name and then they picked me up again. They take me to another airfield. Then another person takes me up and the marshals drive me into town and put me back in, in my cell again. Okay. So now I'm there. So then um, something happens and I, I lose my lawyer. So I, I, I got to get another lawyer because they just, the feds, remember when I told you the feds said they were going to come down on you with both feet? Mm -hmm. Well, they had found out that two of the guys, two, one of the guys that was uh, a co-conspirator in my case, this guy uh, that had snitched on me uh, had used my lawyer once. So they, they got him out. So now I don't have a lawyer. Okay. So then they pushed back the, the court date again. So now, now, the, now the court date's like nine months after I started, you know. Wow. There's a rule that says you got 70 day speedy trial guaranteed you as a as a prisoner. So now I've already been in. I've been in two prisons in a county jail, uh, been in six months. Now they got rid of my lawyer. So I had to get a new lawyer. The new lawyer goes to the judge and says, well, I need time. So then they set it off again. So then then they said, well, we're going to send him back up to this prison to get more treatment. Next thing I know, bang, they got me. They're taking me through the system, except this time. Listen to this. Uh, they get me and they they take me by car to Terre Haute, Indiana. There's a penitentiary and a camp there. But because I was pre-trial and I hadn't, didn't have any uh, uh, security level yet, I couldn't stay in the camp. So they take me into the penitentiary. And let me tell you something. This place was no joke. Now, El Reno, uh, El Reno Oklahoma was no joke either. It was a medium high, but nothing like this place. We pull up out in front. There's eight guys in a van. And uh, they got, they got the old wooden catwalk around with a guy standing there with a, with a loaded uh, M1 on us. We got guys on both sides with guns again. And we got to go, there's just razor wire and razor wire and razor wire, massive prison. I had probably 2,500 guys. And you had to walk through this little slot that they sent you through. And one guy would go through at a time and they'd get you on the inside and then they locked the doors. We're going across to R&D in there, chains clacking. Guys are yelling through the wall, out the windows of the prison saying, hey, you with the blonde hair, you're going to be sleeping with me tonight. Uh. Guys are saying, hey, new meat, <laughs> you're ours tonight. So get ready. I'm going, holy moly, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought, well, I'm glad I don't have blonde hair at least because that was some other guy. <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, maybe they'll spare me because I'm older, you know, because I was 42 at the time or, or 43. I got arrested at 42. And uh, so we go to R&D. We get in R&D, and we're in there forever, and they put us in this long bull bullpen. They take our chains off finally. So they're going through one guy at a time, and they're assigning them clothes, assigning themselves, going and going and going. The guy gets to me, and I'm sitting there, and he goes, all right, Cox. He says, how much time did you get? And I said, well, none. He goes, what are you talking about? I, I, I said, none. I haven't been to court yet. He goes, 
You ain't been to court yet. He goes, then what in the, are you doing in this penitentiary and you haven't even been to court yet? I said, I don't know. This is where I wound up. Oh, he goes, get back in that cell. He locks me back in his bullpen. And because um, he was getting my clothes, he was asking me my clothes size, my shoes. I had a stack of stuff sitting there to go into the penitentiary. And um, so finally, um, some guys show up in their marshals. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're um, deputy sheriffs. They get me out, they chain me all up, and they take me to another county jail. So now this is the third prison, second county jail in six months. Take me to a county jail. I have to stay there two weeks. There's fights. There's everything you can imagine happening all around me. Guys are punching each other, fighting. I'm trying to read the Bible all day. You know, uh, I, I thought, well, if I have to sit here, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to know God. I'm, I'm going to read this thing from one end to the other. I'm going to find out what happened all this time. So I'm reading the Bible every day. Guys are fighting, doing this, doing that, threatening each other. Um, so finally, I leave out of there. Uh, they send me back up to the same place again. And so I go up there. I, 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 this time I get a job. I start working. The, the people are saying, well, you, you don't have to work. I go, well, I, yeah, I do. I don't want to sit around my cell. And I don't want to wait for hospice every week. So I got back in hospice again and got to help people out again. And it was just, it was wonderful. I was, I was so thankful to the Lord. I mean, in the back of my mind, I dreaded going to trial. But I was so thankful that in those times and in, in months and days that God was allowing me and he was working in my life to mature me as a Christian, to, to give me a, a will to want to serve him and, and also um, a passion to learn his word and go to church and things, you know. I mean, so my family came up and visited me. Some prisons will let you go to church with your family. Not all of them, some of them. It's according to the warden. He makes the rules. And I got my family got to come up. And for the first time in my life, I got to go to church with my mom. Mm. We had never been to church together. It was so wonderful. She was crying. Uh-huh. And we were standing in church together. And uh, she, she just ball, just bawling like a baby, wow. you know. You know, I mean, my mom was proud of me. She loved me even though I was a loser. To her, it, it, nothing meant anything, but she loved me. Mm. I was when I was unlovable. She loved me. Moms are great. I'm telling you. And anyway, uh, so I got to I got to see my mom uh, and I got to go to church with her. And then so then uh, some I, I see this big line on the weekend and I go, what's that line over there? And they go, don't you know? And I go, no. They said, Jim Baker. I said, wait a minute. You know, you're talking about praise the Lord, Jim Baker, the first TV evangelist. They go, yeah, he's in here. I go, what? They go, Yeah. I said, what are all those people doing? They're waiting to get a picture with Jim Baker. I said, wait a minute. Jim Baker just got 35 years for conning all kinds of Christians out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and people are waiting in line to get pictures with him? He said, yeah. He said, it's two bucks. You get one, you, you, get, you, you get one, two bucks, and you get a copy. And that, so was, I said, that was his latest business, huh? Yeah. Well, listen, it, it was a cool thing, though. Let me tell you about it. So I got in line. I'm getting a picture with Jim Baker too, right? So, so, and I got that. I, as a matter of fact, I wish I had it in front of me. I'd hold up the screen, and let you see it. So, uh, so I get a picture with Jim Baker, and um, I found at the gym they had a JCs outside of the prison that wanted to come in, and and Jim was in the JCs, and and they were always looking to make money somehow. So Jim would take these pictures. He'd make money, and uh, he would give the money to JCs, and the JCs once a month would allow that money to buy ice creams and sandwiches for the inmates. Hmm. It was a cool thing. And, and I went and volunteered and helped serve ice cream and stuff. And it was great. We had ice cream and pizza. And, <laughs> and Jim Baker was the one who paid for it all by the pictures. Wow. So was, my uh, mom, what's the JCs? 
you, you know, you've heard of JCs. It's like the Optimist Club and stuff like that. Uh, Rotary Clubs, you ever heard of those? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's that type of thing. They call it JCs. I don't know what it stands for, but yeah. So, JCs, yeah. So I hear, I hear that Tammy Faye's coming to see Jim. <laughs> well, I so tell my mom. So wait, he's in the same prison that you're in. Yeah, he's got 35 years. Uh, he just got to prison. Wow. Same prison. I get a picture with him and stuff, and I'll maybe I'll show it to you sometime. I'll, I'll send a copy of it to you. Uh, so, so I get a picture with him, and uh, the words out that Tammy Faye's coming to see him. You know, you, you remember Tammy Faye, right? Oh, how Who can you get her? Got the eyelashes out yep. there. So I told my <laughs> so mom, and she goes, "Oh my gosh." Tammy Faye's coming? I said, yeah. She said, when? I said, well, I don't know. I just heard. So I, I asked Jim. I, he said, well, she's coming on this date. My mom said, I'm coming. I'm a thousand miles away. My mom said, I'm coming. I want to see Tammy Faye. Honestly, I, I couldn't believe it. So she comes to visit me. And I, my stepdad w- was with her. Now, this was a new one. The other one was already gone. And I got another. This is her third one. And uh, and he was older than her. Really nice guy. Great guy. And um, so she comes in. Sure enough, she's in there. And Tammy Faye comes in. Oh, she lights up like a Christmas tree. She goes, Dan, she goes, you think she'll let me, she'll take a picture with me? I said, I don't know, mom, why don't you go ask her? You know, I said, I'm in prison, not you. You're you're a regular person. She's probably going to have any problem with you, you know? And so she walked over and she came back. She goes, Tammy's going to take a picture with me. She said, she'll signal me when she's ready. So, so Tammy signals her and she stands up, you know, and she walks over. And, and Jim stands up. My mom said, Tammy said, Jim, she wants a picture with me. Oh. And, and she, this is no joke because I'm watching from a distance. He combs, he gets his comb on, he combs his hair, he puts his arm around my mom, and then she gets a picture with both of them. He didn't even listen to her. She said, she wants one with me. And he just got hogged his way right in there, man. Go um, figure. Know, and my mom had that picture on her wall till she died. It was just uh, – it was, a, it was an awesome thing. And you, you run into crazy things, you know. And uh, then I got sent back again. Okay, so I go back again. I, I, get, I get hung up in, in Oklahoma again, spend two more weeks there, go back. Something else happens. Now I get back, and the prosecution says they want to continue the thing because they got to do some stuff. Now I'm over a year. I, I go back again. They send me to a different county jail, so that's my third county jail. Then I, then I, they send me to another prison. I'm in a prison I've never been to. Uh, and so the, the prisons are stacking up. I've been in four prisons, three county jails. I've been in nine months now. Uh, uh, all kinds of things happening. It was there when one man died. Was was there for my mom to get pictures. And and then since 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 they, the prosecution uh, wanted to put it off now over a year it would be like 15 months. So then um, they decided they're going to send me back up to Minnesota again. So go I go back up to Minnesota, and uh, I had to stay in Vigo County again. This time I saw one of the worst fights I'd seen. It was, it was unbelievable. Uh, right outside my cell, you know, um, and I'm saying this because I, I want people to understand uh, that, that uh, prison and county jails are no joke. You can get killed at any time in just a second. You know, the thing I found out about prison is you don't know what that person's going through. Let's say that uh, just that day, somebody's wife left them, you know, and they're ready to snap. Mm. You, you you don't even know it. They're like a powder keg, and you say something, and they just stab you. You know they don't care anymore because because they're they're broken hearted. And so, um, so I I go back up there, and then three girls that were friends of mine, we, and they said we're going to come and see you in Minnesota. So they because because I said will you guys come and go to church with me? It was a big deal because I was such a well I like to think of myself kind of as a pagan hunk, 
you know, uh, back in those days. <laughs> a punk. <laughs> and uh, a pagan, I was a pagan hunk. Yeah. Uh, but now, I, now I'm a man of God. So, uh, <laughs> so, so then uh, they came up to visit me. Uh, so the next day we're going to church, right? And church started at 10. So I get there at eight o'clock in the morning and we're all having some, they had, they had bags full of money. See there, you can't have anything on you, but you have to have a clear plastic bag and everything's in machines. And so they had their keys and their money and stuff, you know, where the guards could see what was it, what it was. So they're buying me stuff, you know, and I'm eating sandwiches and bagels and whatever, cause I don't get that stuff over here. And, you know, they were happy to do that and buying me some, some uh, French vanilla coffee out of the machine and stuff. So it gets to be nine 30, right? And uh, we're going to go to church in a little bit. So I know they're going to round us up at about 10 till, and they're going to take everyone to go to church because we have to go through the prison. It's pretty cool for the for the people because they could see the prison from the inside. We had to walk across the yard and into the prison. So all of a sudden, the guards run in. They're running in everywhere, and they're saying, visits are over. They said, they said we want all, all the visitors get up right now and start heading for the door. Inmates get against this wall. I'm going, what? You know, I'm getting ready to go to church for the first time in my life with these girls. I want, I want to show them how I've changed and love the Lord. And uh, they said, now, people. So they get up and give me a fast hug. And they take off. And I, I'm just brokenhearted. They drove a thousand miles to, to see me. Not a thousand. It was, a, it was a 12 hours. It wasn't a thousand miles. It was, it was long. It was 12 hours. And uh, so they, uh, so they, they round us all up. They search every one of us. I'm going, what? I've been in here. You searched me when I came in. That was an hour ago. And I, now you're searching me again. So they search me again. They march us all out. I realize when I get out, the whole prison's locked down. Okay. So I'm going, what the heck? Um, so the prison's locked down. So I um, I get back to my cell and, the, and everybody's locked down in their cells. I'm going, what's going on? They said, well, so here's the story. There was this, these guys were gambling in prison and this one guy you know what you know what ramen noodles are, right? Oh yeah, I already brought them up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I got a whole bunch of them here, so uh, <laughs> a lot of sodium. Be careful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really worried about that after all I've been through. <laughs> yeah, sodium will kill you. Don't worry about prison, but that sodium's hey, rough. Hey, on don't you, get hooked on that sodium, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll never really get off of it. So anyway, so so here's what happened. These two guys were gambling. So in prison, you don't have any money, right? So you got to gamble for something. So they're gambling for soups, you know, for ramen soups. Okay. So this one guy beats the other guy and he owes him two soups. They're probably a quarter a piece. That's 50 cents, right? So this guy told him, he said, well, I I haven't got the money right now. I'll pay you in a little while. Well, he didn't pay him. The guy kept coming back and saying, where's my ramens, man? You're disrespecting me. And the guy didn't pay him, didn't pay him. So that day, while I'm ready to go into church with my visitors, this guy's out on the yard pumping iron and he's on the bench press and this guy walks up with another guy and when he went down on the bench press they pinned the weights on his neck and the guy that the guy that he owed two ramen noodles with had a razor they broke it apart and made a razor out of it and cut his throat wow what the weights are hanging on him he couldn't move and they just and then they took off now we were in you know we're, we're in a medical hospital penitentiary so uh the word got out and the people started running and, and they saved this guy's life, but it was a miracle. Wow. Took him off on stretchers. I mean, they had to take him. I think they took him to Barnes, but I mean, he was really, really bad. And so 
they came and got us out of the, the visiting room because because supposedly guys he scratched one or two of them, uh, you know, struggling, and and they wanted all of us to come out in the hall, line up, let the captain search us all, take our shirts off to see if any scratches us, so they could try to find the perpetrators. Mm. And I go, are you kidding me? It happened at nine nine o'clock. I've been in the visiting room since eight o'clock, but it's like that in prison. They do what it. Once you go to prison, they own you. You know, you don't have you don't have the right for anything. If they want to do it, they do. So they just drove on back home. And uh, later on, they, they caught the guys. The guy was going to get out in six months, too. Wow. He, he had done five years. He was getting out in six months. And he got, I think, 10 years for that. So he got that tacked on. Finally, after 18 months in prison, um, eight county jail, eight, uh, five county jails, eight prisons, um, I had my day in court. Been in 18 months already. This is unheard of, this stuff. This is because these guys... The feds wanted to punish me, so they kept sending me around like ricochet rabbit. Mm. And so, when I, when I, and I was thinking about it, and thinking about it, and, and, I'm, and I'm practicing with the lawyers, and we're going to do this and do that, you know. And I, and I got to the point where our defense was to try to make the other guys look bad, like they were lying. And, and I and I got to the point where I, I couldn't do it. I said, Lord, I'm guilty. I'm guilty as the day is long. Maybe these other guys can do it, but I don't think I can do that. So I went in and I pled guilty. I took 10, I knew they said they'd give me 10 years. So I took 10 years on the chin and I, and I'll never regret it. It was really tough. I knew I was going to do 10 years. And then finally, uh, by the time that I, after that, then I had to wait three more months in the county jail for the judge to sentence me. Then after I got sentenced, I had to wait for them to come after me. So after 25 months of being in prison, I finally went to my first actual dedicated prison. And then during that time over the years, um, See, see, I got I got a story to tell you uh, uh, that, that I hate to leave out because it, it's so such a miracle God did. You, you know that I they sent me to a prison and I was there for a while and I got really sick. This is this was after I went to court hmm. um, and I got really sick in this prison and um, I started I started losing weight on my right arm and my right leg. And uh, do you remember this from the video I sent you? I vaguely remember. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I started getting real sick and I started losing weight and I went to the doctor and he said, well, we're going to have a orthopedic surgeon and pretty soon I'll give you an appointment. So I, I, I went in and, and the doctor said, take off your t-shirt. And I took it off. He says, oh my gosh. I go, what? He's standing behind me. He says, you got a problem. I go, what kind of problem? He goes, well, he said, your right arm, your left, your shoulder, everything on your right side is smaller than your left side. Because I remember I was in the gym and I something happened and I quit working out because it hurt and I, I felt really weird. So they sent me out. They sent me to a, They took me in the orange jumpsuit. And they sent me to a hospital in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I went in. I got a, a test called the EMG. I don't know if you ever heard of it before. Mm-hmm. But an EMG is 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 it's not like the, the heart thing. It's a, it's a nervous conduction. Your nervous mm-hmm. system. And uh, there's this doctor. He puts these metal rings on my finger you know, and then he pushed this button and shocked the tar out of me. Uh, and then he took these long needles like this and stuck them all up and down my legs and arm. And then he, he made me pull out my tongue. And he stuck this needle through my tongue. Wow. And, uh, and I'm thinking I got a slip disc here or something, you know, in my neck because I'm lifting weights. Why don't they take me to a chiropractor and get this thing fixed, man? I ain't, you know, this is stupid, you know? So next thing I know, I asked the doctor, I said, what's wrong with me? He goes, oh, I said, I'll send your reports to the, to the, uh, to the prison. And um, I said, okay, uh, because, you know, when you're in prison, you're on a need to know basis. And as far as they're concerned, you don't need to know because mm-hmm. everything's about security. Three days later, all of a sudden, bang, they come and get me. And they say, Cox, you're going. I go, where? 
They said, well, you, you, you're going to another prison. I go, which one? They said, well, we can't tell you. So, so they, they ship me out. They take me to a private airfield. Never done this before. And they put me on a small, a, a small jet. that was four seats. Me and the marshal and the, and, and, the, uh, and the pilot. I'm going, what in the world is this? And they fly me to Springfield, Missouri, to the federal penitentiary there. They had a hospital in there, too. And, uh, and I get out of the hospital. And I get in and they get me a room and stuff. And I'm in this great big room, 15 guys in it. I call them bullpens. It was a nightmare. Loud. It was crazy. I didn't get a cell. And uh, so they, they could call me down every day for tests and blood tests. They take me out to the hospital there, uh, doing the same thing. All the tests again, sticking the needles all up and down me, blood all over, shocking my fingers, sticking my tongue out. And then finally, they called me down to neurology. And the doctor, the doctor was there, the neurologist. You know, he had been talking to me some and stuff. He goes, he says, Mr. Cox, would you please sit down? Now, I knew something was wrong right away because nobody ever called me Mr. Cox in prison. I can guarantee you that. Um, and he says, would you sit down? I said, yes. He says, Mr. Cox, he says, I'm really sorry about all the tests. Nobody ever said they were sorry about anything either. I come to find out this guy was, was not, he was, he was from the secular world. He wasn't like a guard thing, but he was a specialist. And he said, uh, he said, uh, we, we had to do so many tests. He said, we had to rule out everything first before we can conclude you have something. And he said, we know we had the test here. We had the blood test. He goes, Mr. Cox, he says, I've come to the conclusion that um, he says, you have something called amyotropic lateral sclerosis. And I, th I thought, what the heck is that? He, is, he says, it's better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh. I knew what Lou Gehrig's was. My mouth dropped. And remember, I've told you, I thought I had a, a slip disc or something. I yeah. went to doctors before and got cracked and you're good. Mm -hmm. And I said, what? He goes, yes. He says, it's uh, he says there's terminal and there's no treatment. Wow. And I said, well, doc, I said, how, how much time do I have? He said, well, from the damage I see right now, he says, maybe a year. Mm. And he says in that year, he Jeez, says, man. when you die, he says, we'll carry you out here in a body bag. Cause in prison, when you die, you have to go in a body bag and they handcuff your hands and feet. Did you know that? Really? They handcuff you in a body bag just in case you're faking somehow or you took a drug that knocks you out and you come awake and get out. Wow. You'll, you'll just you'll suffocate in the ground if you pull one of those. But And so uh, I, I'm, I'm freaked out. I, I, I didn't know what to think. The guy tells me I got a year to live. I'm, I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm, I started, I was losing weight and losing weight. I lost 45 pounds of muscle. Wow. I'm 6'1". I, 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 I went from 185 to like 140 pounds. Whoa. Holy cow. You guys, too, you guys know what waist tall, sizes are. I, I had a 29-inch waist pants from the, from, the, from the laundry, and I could pull them straight down. That's crazy. I, I was like a skeleton. My right hand started not hardly working. I couldn't hardly type or write letters. My left wig, I was starting to drag. You know, and the whole time I'm saying, Lord, what's up? I, I, I don't understand this, Lord. You know, uh, uh, and I thought back, you know, when, when, when I was with a guy that was dying, I thought, what could be worse than dying in prison whenever whenever I was with him, you know? Mm, yeah. I, I, th I thought, what could be worse than being in prison? And I thought dying in prison would be something that's worse than being in prison, actually dying there. Mm. And uh, now I, the same guys that I stayed with when they were dying, now I'm dying, you know? And uh, my hair started falling out. And uh, it, it, that's the first time I really started losing hair. I was about 45 at the time. 
And uh, it was a horrible thing. And I, and I, I didn't know what to do. I, I'm crying before my muscles. I don't know if you guys know about illness. My muscles started doing stuff like this. And I, and I couldn't hold my arms down. They were they called fasciculations and it was happening. And I'd have to lay in bed and I took towels and tied them around my arms and tried to lay on them because I couldn't sleep because the muscles were, were, were uh, spasming and everything. Wow. And I'm losing all kinds of weight. And, um, so I, I finally, the, the guard comes to me one day and he says, Danny, he says, uh, you've been here long enough. A lot of guys have died. A lot of guys have left. And this and he said, he said, you got enough seniority. You can get a, you can, there, there's a one man cell open. Well, I'm in, I'm in the middle of all these guys. I don't even know them. I can't even talk to them. You know, I'm, I'm crying under my pillow and they don't even know it. They're having fun. They're playing cards and stuff. And I felt really terrible because I didn't want to share with anybody. I told my family, they freaked out, you know, they're crying and stuff. You know, I hated to tell them. Mm. And so, so they get, he says, you got a one man cell. I didn't know they had a one man cell. So, so I go into this one man cell and I look at it. He sh- he shut the guard, shuts my cell door and it's six feet by, I mean, it's nine feet by six feet a little bed, a little metal cabinet. I laid on the floor and I kissed the concrete because of all the places I'd been and all the luxurious things I did, that cell to me was like a penthouse apartment in Caesar's palace. To be alone in prison for just a few minutes is is, is such a gift from God. And from that moment on, God gave me this this will to, to, um, to, to, to learn his word and to study. And all of a sudden I'm reading the Bible four hours a day. I don't know if you've ever done it before. You read the Bible four hours a day for a week and it will change your life forever. I promise you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had, a, you have to have some kind of a desire to do it. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, and so, so they had this thing called yoke fellows in the chapel. And I remember going there and it, it was, there was like 20 people that came in from outside. You know, we call it the real world. When you're in prison, the real world, somebody from out there and things are out there. And uh, it was like inmate, inmate, um, uh, uh, volunteer, inmate volunteer in a big circle. And at the end, the pastor had been coming there 20 years and he'd seen 15 people a month were dying in this prison every single month for years and years and years and years. Wow. That's the sickest people come from all over the country and they put you in there and you let them die. Okay. So it, the guy gets done talking to everybody and he walks out in the middle of this pastor and he says, does anybody here have a prayer? And I was sitting there, and I mean, my legs were shaking so bad, guys, that I couldn't hardly stand up. I, 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 st- I pushed myself up, leg shaking, and I said, Pastor, I said, I, I've just been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And I said, I, I, need, I, I need healing from the Lord. And this man looked at me. He knew exactly what I was talking about. He started walking towards me, and tears were running down his eyes. Mm. He knew that if God didn't heal me, I would be dead soon. He wrapped his arms around me, and I'm telling you, it's just a passionate prayer. It was I, I just felt so good. And people came up and put their arms on me and everything, and I'm going, wow, this is it, you know. So it, it's over then, and all the inmates had to go over to this one area because it was time for us to move back to our cell. And we get over there, and um, this woman walks up to me, and I, you know, I'm thinking these people have been in church all their life. You know, they're probably born in church. You know, these are great Christians. They know everything about <laughs> the Bible. You know, because that's the way I felt, you know, I and, and listen, this woman comes up to me and she goes, now, Danny, she said, don't get your hopes up because it's not God's will to heal everyone. And when she said that, I lost all hope. I lost all faith because I felt like she knew God way better than I did. Mm. And it, it, it stunned me because I was thinking, OK, this is it. I'm going to believe for my healing right now. That pastor prayed for me and I'm, I'm getting healed. Mm-hmm. And it just blew me away. It hurt me. 
Wow. And I went back to my cell and I said, God, what's the deal? I said, I said is there some kind of lottery in heaven? Danny dies or he doesn't? Uh, do you flip a coin? I, I, I'd, never, I'd never studied healing scriptures. I read, I read the Bible all the time. I never studied healing scriptures. I was healthy as a horse, pumping iron all the time, you know, in great shape. But now I'm dying. And um, so I, I, God gives me this, this great desire to read the Bible every day, hours. Oh, my gosh, I got to where it was, it was so sweet. I couldn't wait to get there. It, it changed my whole life. And all of a sudden, the Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to start, I want you to start memorizing scriptures. Okay. And um, so I started memorizing scriptures. Well, I'd never memorized scriptures before, so I wanted to, I was going to do 100. So I said, well, I'm going to start with something easy, though. You know what I started with? Jesus wept. Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> hey, you got that one quick, didn't you? I, I felt like, well, I'm going to get one down for sure. I'm going to get that one for sure. So, so I did. I memorized 100. So I'm in my cell, 140 pounds, skinny as a rail, uh, dragging my leg around, walking back and forth, praising God. You know, I, I took my eyes off of the sickness, and I put my eyes on the healer. And I said, Lord, I said, I've memorized your word and I'm going to tell it to you right now. I, and, and I was so proud because now I had a father in heaven. I didn't have a father before, but now I got a father in heaven that loves me for who I am. And he loves me unconditionally. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm saying these sitting I'm saying, look, Lord, and I'm saying this one, I'm saying that one, I'm saying this one, I'm saying that one. And I was so immersed in the goodness of God in his, in his glory. And all of a sudden like that. I got a vision from God that I was healed just like that. It was, it was like I saw Jesus on the cross and, and he'd paid for my healing. And, and I knew that I knew that I knew that I was healed. And let me tell you something. I don't care what the doctor said. I don't care what the medical report said. Jesus reached through the razor wire into my cell and healed me from incurable disease because it ain't over till Jesus says it's over. <laughs> That's awesome. And, um, Within three months, I gained back to 40, 45 pounds wow. of muscle. They allowed me to go back to the gym. I put it right back on. Wow. And, you know, that's, that's, that's was in my fourth year of prison. And, uh, of course, I had six more years and I've, since I've been out and stuff. You guys will have to decide if you want to hear more. Yeah, on though, this and, yeah, the, the, <laughs> I said it's going to get worse. That, that, that's the best part of the story right there. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Hallelujah. You praise God. I mean, you know, and um, what did the doctors do with that? You don't recover well, from ALS. Doctor, let me tell you just one real quick one here. So after the doctor diagnosed me, now there was a psych ward in this prison, and then there was a hospital, and then you had areas for people chronic and people that are terminal. And so one day the, the guard told me, he said, hey, you got to go over to the psychiatrist. I go, what? He goes, yeah, you got to go to the psychiatrist. This is about six months. He told me a year, about six months after he diagnosed me. So I go over and I sit down in this in this uh, shrink's office. You know, he was just he was a cop morning was anything. And I and he says, uh, well, uh, Cox, he says, uh, how are you feeling about your diagnosis? And I said, well, I said, doctor, I'm, I'm trusting God for my healing. He jumped out of his chair, leaned over, had a vein popping out of his forehead, <laughs> a vein popping out of his neck. He says, you're dangerously close to denial, mister. Wow. I go, oh, my, he was furious. Uh, he sent me to the psych ward for a while. I had to stay in there until he let me back out of there. 
You crazy uh, Christian. I, watch, I had to go watch watch videos and stuff of, of the ocean crashing on the shore and, <laughs> and, and all kinds of stuff with other people that were, weren't right. You know, and the woman says, what are you doing here? You're, you're right. These people aren't right. And I said, because that guy sent me. I said, can you get me out of here? And she goes, yeah, I'll work on it. And she got me out. So, you know. That's amazing, wow. man. Yeah, yeah. And they got, then I got to go back to prison again, uh, to other prisons. And then I they, you know, wind up, you know, doing all kinds of things. I got more stories. But like I said, today's enough for today. If you guys want more sometime, I'd be glad to follow up. I got tons of things what do you happened. what are you doing now danny what, what's besides i mean obviously you you're telling your story and getting your book out what do you what do you do on a daily basis are you out just be uh evangelizing making disciples is that what you do or well you know the covid things on now so so everything has changed for me actually i've got some some big stuff happening um I, I'm going to be on the front cover of a magazine, a prison outreach magazine called Victorious Living. They're doing a special on me, and I'll be on the cover of the book. It comes out uh, in, in a quarterly issue, January quarterly, of a Victorious Living magazine. And it's a prison outreach. It reaches 1,500 prisons, uh, all 50 states. 500,000 inmates will read it. And it also goes to, um, uh, to Mexico, Puerto Rico, and Canada. Wow. Uh, wow. Besides that, see, because I can't just go in places right now. So so I thought, what else can I do? So I, I wrote an article, a freelance piece and sent it to uh, to Guidepost. They called me up and said, we want to do this article. And uh, they have two million subscribers. So I, I did a short version of my of my testimony, probably fifteen hundred words. And so they're going to put it out in December. So that'll reach that'll reach maybe two million people. I don't know. Wow. I do a podcast every week. Of I, I have a podcast that I do on a thing called uh, uh, Maximize the Moment. There's three other pastors on there. Me. God told me about six months ago he wanted me to start doing five minute sermons and call it Gimme Five. And so I do five minute sermons uh, and, and I and I preach and I evangelize. I, I, I close with a, a prayer of salvation for those listening. Um, and, and that's I, your podcast. Yeah. And, and we well, can, and people can find it anywhere podcasts are. Or? Yeah, we're on about we're, oh gosh, we're on a bunch of stuff. Let me see if I can find it here. I mean, we're on like eight different things. We're on Spotify and all that stuff. I don't know. What's, uh, what's the name of that particular podcast? Uh, maximize the moment. Cool. Well, listeners, go check yeah, that we're out. On, we're on podbean.com, Apple Podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, Listen Notes, TuneIn.com, and Amazon Music. Yeah, you're on all the big... Wherever yeah. you're going to find a podcast, that's where you are. Yeah, you're covered. Yeah, you're covered. And and yeah. you wrote a book, and when, did, when was that book published? In 2007. Cool. So where can they find that book? That book can be found on Amazon, or it, it can be found on any of the big places. Um, it's it's on demand, so you 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 buy it and you'll get it a week later. And that's you know? called Pastor or Prisoner to Pastor. Wait, what's that called? No, it's called High on a Lie. Oh, High on a Lie. Here again, so you guys can see it. Awesome. Oh, brightness in there. Uh, yes, yeah, called High and a Lie. Now, I, I sell it. I go to churches. I give my testimony all the time. I give a short version, 30 minutes, and I do an altar call, and I, and I preach in prisons. Uh, penitentiaries are my favorites. I, I speak prison, so I, I love to talk to the guys. <laughs> that's, in the that, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Uh, I'm bilingual. I speak English in, in prison. In prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's good. Yeah. So, so I, I love to go in and do that. And, and I give my book away into there. I've got letters and letters and letters from inmates 
that have given their life to Jesus after reading my book. Damn, um, that's awesome. They send me, they say, oh, it's, there's nothing better on earth to, to realize that, that your story has touched someone and, and given them new faith and new hope. And, and uh, they send me letters and then I, I communicate with them. And then I sell them in churches. So I, almost every book that I sell in the church, I, I just use that money to buy more to give to prisoners. Because here's how it works, you know, when I when I sell a book to a person, they, they read it, maybe somebody in their family. When I give a book to an inmate, 20 inmates minimum will read that book. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, 20. Yeah. It, 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 I was in prison. Trust me, I know. So what happens if somebody gets a book in prison? Uh, you know, not everybody can afford to have their family send them every book. So if somebody gets a good one in, mm. they start talking about it and people get in line and they pass it down and pass it down until they're done reading it. And there's somebody, I've had people tell me that they, they've read my book till the pages have fallen out of it. Wow. You know, I haven't even touched on my story. I mean, this this book will blow your mind. It's a seven-hour read. Uh, but there it's broke down a little easier for you to read than if you try and, you know, it, it's really detailed. I mean, even when I, even when I went to court, I've got all the things that were in court, all the things the judge said and I said, it's it's in there. I've got the diagnosis from the doctor in there, how he says it in his in his uh, doc, in his diagnosis, so I get all that kind of stuff. I got pictures of me and Jim Baker in there, of course. And <laughs> stuff like that. So yeah, tell so, a story about my mom and, and Tammy. Faye. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, you know, that's awesome. So listeners, yeah. go check out the book for the de- for the lie. for the little deets. Yes, um, that's cool, man. Well, I wish we could have talk for like three more hours, but we can't. So, <laughs> but I, I'm so gr- uh, grateful that yes, you reached thank out. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Welcome. And, I, and I hope that anybody out there is listening right now will will understand that I was on the highway to hell in rebellion to God. Yeah. And when Jesus saved me at that point, he put me on the highway to heaven. That day, my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and I have a secured future, a destiny of heaven. And you can do the same thing anytime you want to. So if you're leading a path like I did, if my story parallels your life and you know from what I said that you're doing wrong, it's time to get off the highway to hell and get on the highway of heaven and do it soon because Jesus loves you and he died for you just like he did for us. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. This has been Recreated Podcast, and we really appreciate you being on uh, on the show with us and paying attention and listen. If you want more information, we have a website, www.recreated.life, L-I-F-E at the end. And you can go there, and we have other podcasts available. We would certainly love to hear from you. There's an email contact form thing. <laughs> You can fill out of your... Or email us at friends at recreated.life. Or that, yeah. right there. Yeah. So, uh, Recreated is all about uh, your story, our story, everybody's story that uh, meets Jesus and walks and suffers and learns what it's like to uh, receive his mercy for their life. Yeah, so, if you have a story, we'd love to hear it. Please contact us. And until next time, next week, I think, mm-hmm. uh, have a good week. Yep. And don't forget Jesus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good make it up as you